Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. 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 This episode will contain TFOS 1262 to 1275, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1262 Rules of War, written by PM451 The image flickered to new recording. Another prisoner being interrogated. Female this time. She was silent, glowering at the interrogation officer. She'd never spoken, although once she had ejected saliva into the guard's face. Some animals on their world sprayed venom, giving the animal more range than bite. So it had taken them a while to believe that her saliva wasn't toxic. Not just not toxic to them, but not at all. The whole act seemed to be no more than defiance for the sake of itself. The screen changed through other examples of humans being interrogated, some angry, some begging, some seemingly cooperative, before changing to a recording back to the first one. He'd been one of the most cooperative. He seemed nervous. Not unreasonably, a human would have insisted. While walking home from his crappy part-time job in a crappy little town, he'd been captured by a group of alien warriors taken aboard a cloaked shuttle and transported to what he was told was a scout ship for an alien invasion fleet. How else to top 2022, he thought at the time. There had been three other humans on the shuttle with him. On the main ship, he'd seen others in the distance being marched into the individual cells. Some looked foreign, gathered from other countries, other continents. A lot, from what he saw, maybe 50 to 100 people in that batch. Now, he was sitting in a weirdly shaped and uncomfortable seat across a disturbingly normal-looking white plastic table from a large insectoid creature asking him questions about his world. The latest of many sessions that were part language sessions, part interrogation. The aliens shared information about their own race and culture, along with their intentions against them, as part of trying to teach him and to understand humans. In spite of his improved use of the alien language, in halting words, the man asked why they were revealing so much to him. The interrogator replied, as he had to many of the others, that the prisoners would all be killed after they served their purpose. So, there was no danger of useful intelligence returning to Earth. A little later, when discussing the way the aliens, and by contrast humans, fought wars, the man had raised the subject of rules of war. The man asked, apparently, as an example, So, if a prisoner escaped, Take that, me for example, if I escaped, would you hurt the other humans on the ship? Like the interrogator, those watching the recording leaned forward at this point. You can't escape, you're a prisoner. Right, uh, but humor me. If I did, and maybe killed some guards, would you hurt the other prisoners? They're going to be killed, no. No, I mean, in addition to that. In addition to being killed, yeah, you know... Torture, mock execution, sexual assault, starvation, anything intended to cause extreme pain or feck with their minds. Horror. Confusion. What would be the value of those things? Revenge, indirect punishments, lots of reasons, but that's a no, is it? The commander turned off the footage. He'd already seen what came next. And the others are still detained. He'd also already asked that question. Yes, commander, only that one escaped. And he's dead? Yes, sir. He died trying to short the high-voltage electrical system. Did he realize what it was? We taught them to read our basic technical script as part of teaching them enough single speech to interrogate. 
He deliberately grabbed the high-voltage power cables connected to the detention force field system. Yes, Commander. If the backup hadn't come in, it might have actually taken down the whole system. It certainly wasn't designed with that in mind. Freeing them all, only, into the detention wing. And where are the other humans aware of this? There was no sign of prior communication. But many of them noticed the fields on their cells flickering and started trying to attack them. Using anything including their bodies. Does their nervous system not receive painful shocks from the field? Yes, sir. They seem to experience even more pain than we do. Yet, they did it anyway. We had to sedate them before they harmed themselves. And none of them are soldiers. None. We're sure every indication is that they are average members of their species. <sighs> How did he kill his interrogator? I couldn't see the uh, details. A crude blade made from a piece of material broken from the food tray, shoved repeatedly through the gaps in his carapace, especially around the head and eyes. He brought another image up onto the screen. Show it to the others. Clean it, then show it to the other humans. Ask if they recognize it. Obviously, don't let them touch it. Most claimed not to know anything about it. A few said that it was a shiv, an improvised prison weapon. We asked them if they had experience with them, and they said no. We asked how they knew about them, and they seemed uncertain. They said, everyone knows. Are they not soldiers? No, Commander. Nor criminals? We don't believe so. He suddenly had a very bad feeling. Wait, if all the others saying that they all know, search their cells immediately. That ones that recognize all of them, pay extra attention to the ones that said that they didn't recognize it. All of them? All but four. Something itched in the inside of his carapace. And all different? There were common themes, stolen parts, broken parts from their cells. Not all had been fashioned into weapons. I'm not sure they all could, and some just seemed to be stockpiling, but, uh, yes. All but four, the itching continued. Yes, Commander. The gods go back and research those four again. Use instruments. How many? Two of the four. They found a way to get behind the panels. One had multiple weapons, more than he could use alone. And the other two had nothing. No, Commander. We're certain. He pondered something, digging into his mind. No. Move them both to another cell. Actually, move all four of them. The other two might have more than one hiding spot. Commander, I assure you we search. Just do it. The lights flickered at his side. All of them, Fleet Admiral, but we've recovered more than half. Commander... Is your ship compromised? No, sir. They are limited in what they can do. Kill them immediately upon capture. This is ridiculous. Yes, Reed Admiral. In the Scotship. Two escape pods. Evacuate the ships. Claxon sounded. In the flagship. Honor the Grand Fleet to fire upon the ship as soon as the pods are clear, before starting rescue. And you lost the second ship. The angler being Aster. As he watched the reports. Three, all up, she said brightly. Surely, after the second, they evacuated the second ship in individual spacesuits, not pods, in open space. Each was verified before being brought on board of the third ship. So, how? Apparently, they cut the heads off several low-ranked crew members, jammed themselves somehow into the rest of the suit, and, um, operated the head like a puppet. Meaning? They stuffed their hands inside the neck and operated the mouth, while they themselves talked in near-fluent single speech to answer the challenge. The third ship. No evacuation was attempted. When it moved towards the flagship, it was fired upon and destroyed. 
Every escape pod was hunted down and destroyed. Every body that floated free of the wreckage was destroyed. By the stage, the original fleet admiral had gone quite mad. He ordered the entire fleet of conquest to ram into the human planet at relativistic velocity. His second-in-command executed him, retreated the fleet to a nearby star system, and contacted their superiors for instruction. He went back, of course. Even though they hadn't even left their planet, had no ability to leave their planet, and had no idea you existed. Correct. Well, they had rumors. Our ships weren't as perfectly cloaked as we thought, but, uh, correct. Why contact them at all? Leave them in their own system. They were advancing rapidly, and they were going to get out eventually. Maybe your admiral wasn't so mad. Just kill them all. She laughed. How could we ever be sure? So you pretended to be peace-loving, harmless, and asked for immediate peace and trade treaty. And they agreed? Yeah, oh yes. They were quite enthusiastic. Many of them are obsessive xenophiles. Then they can all be that bad. They say that one of their ancient generals cut the right hand off every male they have captured tribe, just as a warning to others. But they are a space-faring civilization now, surely. They still have issues on their home world with suicide bombers and mass shootings. Murder-suicides are a common risk in familial disruptions. Their leaders require protection from their own people, even when popular. She thought for a moment, especially when popular. And all of the races that have joined your alliance, this is why none of you fight. Oh, we still fight with each other, if we are sure that the humans aren't watching the area. Even fighting each other, you're still worried about them merely finding out. Oh god, yes. What if they want to help? If we do this, how would your young find honor without battle? Actually, the humans have thought of that. They have uh, spots. Uh, here, javelin. With a click, I brought up an example on the screen. Those are spears. Archery, click. Hunting bows, hunting. Ha, no, they compete for the greatest strength. Click. Only separately. Here is a battle over a ball, and here, and here, and here. Click, click, click. Oh, why do you not attack more violently if they're aggressive as you claim? These games have rules that ritualize their attacks. So they don't fight, but instead, oh, these are the direct fighting contests. Fencing, click. Judo, click. Kendo, click. Taekwondo, click. The list went on for some time. Boxing, click. Enough, enough, you've made your point. And, uh, mixed martial arts, click. She let that one play for a while. Gods, are these men great rivals? No, I think they own a chain of sporting good flaws together. They have more blatant battle simulations. Is paintballing, click. Battle reenactments, click. Dodgeball, click. Oh, and racing. Horses, cars, bikes, motorbikes, aircraft, spacecraft, demolition derbies. Click, 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 click. And they quickly adopted trials of combat of their own warriors. Click. Although, of course, we don't call it that anymore. We had to invent some rules to limit it before we could let the humans near it. Everyone seems to be having fun, at least. She sighed. Yeah. They watched in silence for some time. You believe we should sue for peace? I don't know if that's enough. You shouldn't have even hinted at war. You might have ruined everything. Unless... Maybe you can say that declaring war is how you begin a trade negotiation. They love haggling. We don't negotiate trade prices. You charge what it is worth. You accept or decline. Anything else is accusing the other of lying. I think from now on your species are going to be legendary for haggling culture. No. Sorry. He grimaced in a racist style and she showed him her understanding by letting him think in silence. Afterwards, he started. Yes. 
Can we at least fight your civilization? Oh, oh, we'd like that. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1263. What do you fight for? Written by LG Father Anthracite. These damn tunnels were confusing. There was poor visibility, traps everywhere, and the damn things were infested with humans. I just wanted to finish the sweep and clear and go back to base so that I could rest and eat. I'm tired of chasing after shadows in these pits. My patrol partner was injured by a booby trap, and I had been forced to leave him behind. He was probably already dead. I heard humans don't even leave behind the bodies of the dead. Apparently, anything they couldn't eat just got used as materials for making equipment. I'd seen them myself. Humans with scraps of carapace tied around their bodies, crude spears made out of claws tied to ends of stinks. They really were monsters. Squishy, oil, hairy little vermin that swarmed and consumed. I know why they needed to be conquered. But what was the point of subjugating them? They were just to be a drain on the Empire's resources if they really ate their own body weight every cycle. No wonder they were trying to scrape them off of those so many planets. They were going to stripe them bare of biomass in no time. I was so preoccupied thinking about how they were that I failed to notice a human had been approaching. I spotted him right around the same time he saw me. Down! If I hadn't been daydreaming, I would have got the drop on him. I'll have to report my incompetence when I get back to base. I'm not looking forward to the punishment, but it would be even worse if I let him get away. He turned and ran back up the tunnel that he had been coming down, and I chased after him. It was a quick one. I just barely was able to get close to him when he suddenly turned down a side tunnel, and I had to skid and go back to make the turn. I was running down the tunnel, trying to catch up, when I fell into a trap. I fell to the bottom of a covered pit. I could feel my shell crack when I landed, and I tasted blood in my mouth. This is it, I thought. Everything was getting darker. Darker even than these godforsaken tunnels. This is how you die. Food for a vermin. Now, not how a warrior wants to end. I laughed once, and then I was unconscious. I woke up in a bright room. It was white, clean, and it smelled of harsh chemicals. I cannot move. My limbs are immobilized, but the pain is intense. I can feel the cold air stinging my soft flesh through the many cracks in my carapace. I see a portal open, and a human comes in. I know what will happen next. I will be consumed, but I will not die like a coward. Come then, beast, eat my flesh, but I pray to the masters that you choke on every bite. I strain against the invisible bonds that restrain me, but I cannot move. The human approaches without fear. It goes straight to the largest crack in my exoskeleton and reaches its wiggly tentacles at me. I'm sure it's going to rub out a piece of flesh to eat and brace myself for the pain. But I feel nothing. When I look, it is examining the crack. After a few minutes, it applies some sort of thick goop, which quickly hardens and seals the crack. The human applies the sealing agent to all major cracks in my shell, and slowly, the pain subsides. After it is finished, it leaves the room. It never says anything, and never looks at my face. I am left to ponder what it is to be my fate. Perhaps they wanted to keep me alive until they needed me for food. Perhaps they wanted to nurse me back to hell so they could perform experiments on me. 
I had heard rumors that I captured was worse than death. I was unlucky, indeed. My membranes grew heavy and my eyes closed. I fell into an uneasy sleep, speculating on my final fate. How goes the programming? Asked a man in uniform. Well, it's been fairly simple so far. The poor bastards have been purposely bred to be suggestible, and not to question what they are told. I'm actually a little afraid of them being taken advantage of, after we have sought all of this out. I'll pass that concern along, replied the uniformed man. Speaking of sorting this out, how goes the war? Please, these guys haven't got the skills of a greenie fresh out of basic. The so-called masters have no idea what they have coming for them. Hopefully, another twenty cycles will see this all end. But you're going to be busy long after that, Doc. Yeah, because I have so much free time now. Speaking of which, time for my three o'clock. I do not understand. You are not going to consume my flesh, no. And you will not kill me. No, no, we won't. Unless you force us to. I look at the oily pink thing in front of me. He stares back at me. Why have you captured me then? I ask. To free you from the masters. What do you mean? I was free, but now you have me bound here. I throw his lies in his face. Oh, you could move around before, but you were forced to fight. Told what to think, sent halfway across the galaxy to throw your life away for the masters. You were never free, the human said calmly. I came here to keep you from destroying the worlds the masters have claimed. That is why I fight. You fight to save the masters' worlds. I'm here to save my home. The masters decided that they wanted our worlds and then sent you to take them from us. Home? I asked, confused. That's right. I was born here. I fight because I have family here. Friends. And a life that your masters have decided to try and end arbitrarily. I am here to protect those things. I also fight to protect you. I do not need your help. These words make me angry, but I don't know why. Oh, really? Then tell me, why do you fight? Have we invaded your world, or were you simply told to fight? Did the masters even ask you to fight in person? Or did you just get sent here and told to fight by one of your officers? Back home, do you have family? A home, or were you produced in a breeder tank, live in the barracks? I've seen the shells of my kind, worn as armor. You would kill and eat us. How does he know so much? I admit we did some pretty grisly things to survive, but once we had reinforcements from our other worlds, we stumped. This is one of the problems your people seem to have no perception of. What problems? We are steadily taking control of more ground. Soon you'll be routed, and we will have saved the planet from your insatiable scourge. My kind have not had a casualty in nearly three months. How many of the patrols have never come home? Who told you? that you were gaining ground. The bastards. They think they can just keep throwing soldiers at us until they crush us out of existence. But they never bothered to learn anything about us. We spend millennia practicing every kind of war you can imagine. Your simple tactics and low-tech gear are no match for us when we are properly equipped. I... But, uh, You are a scourge. You eat your own body weight every cycle... He would destroy this planet's ecosystem in just a few atoms. Would the masters lie? 
I eat maybe a kilo of food every cycle. More lies from your masters. You say you fight for me. How can you do that when we are enemies? I asked, my final desperate attempt to salvage something of what I knew before. What are you? He asked me. I am a warrior, I said immediately. I wasn't. Not until you attacked. I was a doctor. I helped people get over trauma and mental health issues. I never wanted to fight. But you, you were raised from the tank to be a fighter. No one ever asked if you wanted to fight. No one let you try and write poetry. No one gave you paints and canvas. Nobody asked you to tell them a story. They never let you build anything, make something. They never even asked if you wanted to try anything but fighting. You are a slave, and the masters threw away your life to conquer a planet they desire out of greed. I'm here to tell you the truth, to fight for you. So, one day you can decide to be a poet, or a writer, or a fighter, but we want you to make that choice. We are not your enemy, nor your masters. We only want to be your friend. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1264 Human Aggression Paradox Written by T. Deegan Humans are, all things considered, a pretty normal race. Yet, in one regard, they defy all norms. This is called the Human Aggression Paradox. 100 years ago, Diplomatic Headquarters, Earth. We have just received the communique from the Bodegon. They have challenged us to a tier 5274 system. Challenged? What are they claiming it's part of their territory? The translators say it's more of a declaration that they will take the system from us by force. Sounds more like a declaration of war to me, then. Well, yes. But the translation cautioned that the translations may still be incorrect. Don't tell me. They always say that. I would, too, if the outbreak of an interstellar war depended on my translations. Well, I don't want it either. Forward it to the government, and it's their problem. Will do. Oh, and give the fleet the heads up, too. Unofficially, of course. Of course. Two weeks and 150 light years later, flag bridge of the UNS James, flagship of the second human fleet. How long until we reach the year 5274? We will be leaving hyperspace in ten minutes, sir. Good, fleet status, Admiral Robinson asked. All ships report ready for battle, sir. Communication officer John Howard answered. That was the fourth time in ten minutes, John thought to himself. The Admiral is just as nervous as all of us. No wonder, though. It'll be the first confrontation between a human fleet and an 81. Ever. Who knows what is going to happen. After way too much time, the navigation announcement finally sounded from the bridge speakers. Leaving hyperspace in five, four, three, two, one. Drop. Deep inside the ship, John noticed nothing as the giant energy set free from the transition from hyperspace. Just a flicker from the status indicator in the corner. And there were two light hours from Thea 5274, a K-type star in the middle of nowhere. What is the status? Looks empty. There's a colony station above Thea 3, and some smaller ships between it and the asteroid belt. Probably miners. That's it. Game from navigation. John could feel the tension leave the bridge crew. Seems like we were fast enough. Contact the colony, the Admiral ordered. 
Yes, sir. Based on our distance, we expect an answer at the earliest in three hours, fifty-five minutes. Good. Direct calls for Thea 3. And tell the fleet to reduce readiness. Three hours and fifty-eight minutes later, John glanced at his screen again, waiting for an answer from Tier 3 Colony. They had already picked up omnidirectional chatter from the various mining ships, indicating that everything was alright. So, he was not overly nervous, but still, there was a new inbound message. Message type Bodigan simple. Fuck! Sir, we just received a Bodigan message. The interpretation team is working on it. The temperature in the room seemed to drop by several degrees. From where? Came back from the command chair. Right from the colony, either from either the station or right next to it. Navigation, keep your eyes open. Make sure that we don't have a surprise bleed hiding somewhere. Yes, sir. Another message from the colony station. Received another message from the colony this time. They say that there is a Bodegan ship hanging around Tier 3, but they haven't touched the colony yet. Good. Maybe we still have a chance to solve this without bloodshed. Keep on course and let's wait on the translation. John, all but stared at his screen, waiting for the translation. What did it take so long? It had already been, he glanced over at the clock, barely two minutes. Couldn't the clock go faster or something? How long would this take? He glanced over at the clock, another ten seconds gone by, while the rest of the bridge was searching for a hidden fleet somewhere. All he could do was wait, until... Sounded from his headphones. Finally, the translation. Or, as they called it, preliminary interpretation. He opened it. This made no sense. Sir, we have received a fast draft. The Bordigan are asking why we brought so many ships. Something about this system is only worth a thousand units. Unknown what is meant by units. Anyway, they are inviting us over to their ship to discuss the battle plan. So, on the positive, we are stronger than they thought. On the negative, I want to murder the cultural exchange team. Let's wait for a full translation, and then we'll know more. Tell the fleet we don't expect hostilities in the immediate future. Several hours and too many messages sent back and forth between the fleet and the Bordigan small warship, as they had learned later. Admiral Robinson looked around the table, full of tired faces. So to summarize, when a nation challenges another for territory, they use some weird formula to calculate the worth of the territory, and then both sides send that amount to a predetermined battleground to battle it out. And in our case, that is 1,000 ground soldiers. More or less, um, they also take the size of the nations into account for fairness, plus the host of other factors, but that is the important part. Laura Reynolds, the head of interpretation, confirmed. So it's a war game, just with death, and against an enemy which had perfected it. She shook her head. This is a fight we can't win. But we have a whole fleet. Just blow them out the sky and be done with it. And then what? This is barely worth calling a conflict. The system is nearly worthless. But when we attack them outside the game, who knows how they will react. Maybe we can roll them over like nothing. Or humans are history in a year. No. We'll get our people out of here, give them an empty system, and let the smart people back home figure out how to handle them next time. The next time? Of course. They have a codified way to battle for territory. This might as well be a daily business for them. One year later. Earth. They have taken K539-56 as well. The Adronians this time. That makes five in just the last two months. This can't continue. But what can we do, Mr. President? 
We've analyzed their battle games, and, and even ignoring the moral issues, we are wholly unable to win against them. It is their game, and they have perfected it. And a direct attack, none of these systems are worth nearly enough to justify war. In fact, we haven't actually lost anything yet other than time for the colony ships. But what when they reach the colonies? At that point, we will have to defend us regardless. And if we can't win their games by then, we might be in luck there. Robert Niles, head of cultural exchange, interrupted. We are still not sure about the details, but there seems to be an exclusion zone around every home system. My team believes that they won't challenge us with systems inside it. How large is it? About 50 light years from Earth in every direction. We need to be sure. The colony of Hydrox 84 is 45 light years away. If that is safe, we may avoid a war altogether. Not war. That'd be great. The soul wars were bad enough. We also need to issue a general stop for building permanent installations further out than, say, 40 light years for now. And tell the miners and everyone else out there just to move on to when someone else wants that system. Yes, sir. And prepare statements for when this gets out. Something along the lines of, we'll not let our citizens die in meaningless war games. We defend the peace. The aliens are too dumb to be real war. And so on. We can turn this into a positive thing. We just have to do it right. Today, humans are all things considered a pretty normal species. Yet in one regard, they defy all norms. This is called the human aggression paradox. The lecture hall was packed. The lecture of cultural values and how they have crossed species always had a high attendance. But today's lecture on the human paradox filled every last seat, as well as most of the ground. It is well known that every successful sapient species has a certain level of aggression, from the individual over groups to the largest nations. This is a simple requirement for survival. Regardless whether they are herbivores or carnivores, a group of any size can be aggressive. Yes, even the peace-loving herbivore backed into a corner would rather charge their attacker than let itself be killed. In a herd, they might stampede over their predators, and as a nation, they will battle by any system they might make a home. The audience nodded along the theory of equal aggression standing solid for the last five centuries. Yet, humans defy this rule in not the most absurd way possible. The aggression of the individual or group is classified as slightly above average, just as 15% above all other sapient species. Yet on a national level, they are the only species to ever be classified as fully peaceful, with no recorded conflicts. In fact, they are the only species where the National Aggression Index is more than one step below the individual or group level. Sadly, to this day we have not been able to find an explanation for this missing aggression. Many, me included, believe there is still a large hole in our ability to understand each other, as every question on this matter is answered with this nonsensical statement. We don't play war. We either do war or we don't. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1265 Coping Methods Written by Daemek The human was fidgeting under Fluag's scrutiny. Is there anything you need, Captain? No, he grunted. There's nothing to be done when we're in this in-between of dimensions. Oh. All right. The human hesitated when Fluag's gazed in ship. Let me know if you do. Though convenient, faster than light travel was damn boring. 
Flug had spent years of his life on freighter ships, so he'd experienced it with mind-numbing dullness. But two of his crew were first-timers. He'd normally ignore them. However, one of them was a human, the newest member of the Galactic Society. Flug was curious to see how it reacted to the tedium. Each species had their own method of coping, some more entertaining than others. Your name, human? said Flug, breaking the silence. Desta Willis. It, or was it a she, showed its teeth, which made Flug wonder if it desired to eat something. Some species took to gorging themselves to manage the monotony. I am we. I am a janitor, announced the UAE beside her. Flug suppressed his croak of annoyance. He'd worked with many UAE before, and they tended to never shut up, especially when they were bored. This one was no exception. He began a steady chatter of inanities, which Flug ignored with ease. The human seemed just as capable. After putting strange contraptions in its ear holes, the human had closed its eyes, and it made no movement besides the rise and fall of its midsection. Flug left soon after to check on the ship's course, but the pilot had nothing new to report, as usual. He returned to the crew quarters, unsurprising to see the UA still talking to the human. Nesta hadn't moved. Captain greeted the wee. The human said nothing. Flug chaffed it with irritation. He neither expected nor wanted the human to be as loquacious as the UA, but it was common courtesy to greet the captain of the ship. Desta had done it every time before, so it wasn't as if he didn't know the tradition. We swivel to face the human. Desta, the captain is here. The human was still quiet. Desta, human. We elongated its neck and get a closer look. Desta, why aren't you responding? Flug felt a shudder of anxiety. When he privately moaned about the uninteresting nature of FTR travel, he hadn't meant for this. Crew member, human Desta Wellis, he grumbled. No, and loud, I command you to reply. The human was unresponsive. Oh no, oh no, 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 whined we. Dester is broken, it's the human hand. The UAE extended a pulsating tendril, freezing, when Flug snarled at him. Don't touch! He consciously kept his fangs from extending. We don't know how the human will react. We might put her in danger, or vice versa. Flug tried to suppress a growl, despite his efforts. His body was reacting to his uneasiness. Get the medic. She's on the bridge. We hesitated. Several tendrils still extended over Desta. No! The UAE slivered away, making surprise speed for one of its kind. Flug looked back to the immobile human. Human! He growled. If this is some sort of game or joke, then I will write you up for insubordination. Sadly, that didn't work. Before Flug could threaten the human further, the UAE had returned with a click. When it clicked, the human stopped working. I was talking to it, and the captain came in, and, and, and... We continued blabbering, purposely increasing implausible causes for the human's condition. You've tried verbally stimulating it, right? The click, ignoring we. Yes, it was unresponsive. The medic click with return. Well, uh, from the files that I have on humans, attempting to physically stimulate it would not be dangerous. Their evolutionary responses are tame, as such things go. Click, paused, antenna vibrating. I suppose I should... I'll do it, Luke said, his growl, brooking no argument. Carefully, he prodded the human with the blunt end of his claw. When the human didn't react, Flug did it again. 
Well, began the medic, maybe something strong plug grasped the human's appendage and shook it from side to side, taking care not to rip it from its torso, though his instincts demanded otherwise. The human jerked into animation with a gasp, its eyes darting from the three beings in front of it. It quickly took the odd objects out of its ear holes. Eh, is something wrong, huh? asked Jester. Sorry, I'm a heavy sleeper. I thought you were a human, wheezed tendrils pulsed, but everyone ignored him. You were unresponsive, Click said, clicking. I suggest you do not move. You may be suffering from some sort of melody. You are supposed to disclose any health issues, the captain glared at his newest and most troublesome crew member. What? It rubbed its eyes. I'm not sick. I was just sleeping. Everyone stared at the human. You were what? said the medic, skittering closer. Sleeping, you know, it trailed off. Maybe you have a different word for it? What is sleeping? The captain sheathed its claws, since no one was apparently in danger. Desta opened and closed its mouth. It repeated the action several times before finally speaking. It's when you close your eyes and, um, your brain sort of turns off. You become unconscious, basically, and lose control over voluntary functions. You enter a coma, the squeaked the medic, placing its antenna against the human scent. Hold still. Your neural functions may be compromised. Comas generally happen because of massive damage. She rummaged in her pouch and fumbled for a scanner. No, no. The human delicately leaned back from the clique's parantic ministrations. It's completely different. I wanted to do it. The medic froze. You ended coma willingly. It's not a coma. The human batted aside the medic scanner with increasing frustration. Don't any of you sleep? Of course not, interrupted Flug, annoyed by the back and forth. What is the point of this sleep? I'm not entirely sure. Dester scratched its head. Feels good. Helps the body repair. But why would falling into a coma help with that? Clicks and tenines began vibrating fast enough to buzz. According to my files, your species has quite typical heating mechanisms. It's not a coma. Is it like dying? We said, breaking the record for the longest amount of time the UA had remained silent. Dester shook her head. Well, uh, I wouldn't know, since uh, we dreamed during it. I guess not. That caused another round of silence. What's a dream? The UA asked, vocalizing everyone's confusion. The human's entire face contorted. Um, it's sort of uh, our brain making up images and sounds to occupy itself while sleeping. You hallucinate. You hallucinate when you're in your coma. If the medic's antennas vibrated any faster, they'd fall right off. That sounds dangerous, really dangerous, and scary. We retracted its tentacles. Can't you just not, not, not sweep? Sleep, it corrected. And no, we're physically incapable of doing it for an extended period of time. We get cranky, our motor functions decrease, we actually hallucinate, which is different from dreaming. I swear, Desta paused. Actually, I think we die if we don't sleep. We haven't really tested it. The medic threw her hands in the air. If you don't enter in regular comas, your species dies. The human twisted its mouth downwards. Uh, pretty much. Uh, do you really not sleep? Why would a species do something so illogical? said the captain, still trying how the sleep would affect a human's work. Does this mean that the human would have to periodically be useless, thus neglecting its duties, or die, also neglecting its duties? Don't you guys have days and nights? At everyone's confusion, the human tried again. 
How are your planet's rotational cycles? You don't have a period of sun followed by darkness as the planet spins? We do, but uh, it's very slow. We migrate with the sun, Blug huffed. What does it have to do with anything? It's always right where we are. We, of course, had taken the human's query and had run off with it. We never go to the gold side of the planet, though we late created lights and allowed us to. Our planet orbits a binary system, interrupted Click. We have various intensities of light, yes, but nothing significantly dark. That explains it. The human moved its head down in a jerky manner. Our home planet has a very short spin, so we experience rapid shifts between light and dark. During the dark periods, we sleep. We're adapted to light times, so there isn't much that we can do when the sun isn't visible. That makes no sense, Blue grumbled. As adaptations go, that has to be the stupidest. I'll have to agree with you, Captain. The global are one used to short rotations, too, the medic said wisely. Their species compensated by having a light and dark form. Why doesn't yours? It's not like we collectively decided to sleep. The human threw its appendages into the air. I don't know what to tell you. No need. I've heard enough. The captain glared at Dester. However, if you use your species handicap as an excuse to get out of work, you will be fired. Wouldn't dream of a captain, said the human cheerfully. With a snort, the captain marched out of the crew quarters, leaving the human to be interrogated by Click and Wee. The human was clearly broken, but it was a species-wide problem that couldn't be fixed. Flug had to admit, though, as coping methods go, the humans clearly had the strangest. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1266. Be weapon. Too horrible for war. Written by Norman 2626. Ainu placed his head back slowly on the pillow left to him, keeping his eyes closed, breathing in the strange air of this place. When the illness that had seized him was explained, he had leapt about and yelled, wondering how his own blood could become treasonous to him. He'd drawn his knife and was about to see if he could bleed the vileness out. But the great ones had seized him and told him to lay down his arms, for they had their own far more potent weapons. He had accepted and was brought here to a land of white stones and silver, where beds lay in rows, filled with these people, the great ones gliding from man to man and plying all matter of tools that he didn't understand. Blades, like the teeth of venomous animals, connected to clear stomachs of colorless fluid, covered in ruins of the great ones. Their tongue was one that he could speak, and even read in some cases, but the words displayed meant nothing to him. Perhaps it was the titles of their gods who banished diseases so effortlessly. Ainu mused on the power of these spirits. Perhaps, had his people worshipped these same gods, they may have been as mighty as the great ones. Deities of deities, he wondered if there was even an upper limit. Still, he was comfortable in the strange land. He was allowed visitation by his family and food well, something unrecognizable to any dish that he'd eaten before was something that he could stomach with relatively little difficulty. He spent most of his days in a strange place, eating what he could best be described as seeds, strange white objects of regular round shape that must have been taken at strict times in accordance with when he woke. When he ate, 
and when he slept. Such rituals of medicine were not foreign to him, only the ingredients seemed odd. He had in secret taken two of these seeds when he was told to take one and delivered it to his son, telling the boy to plant it in the ground to see if it would come of it. The more he studied the great ones, the more he suspected that they were hiding both everything and nothing from him. When he pressed, one would easily divulge his secrets, but only in odd metaphors or a story, and the words they used amongst their own were the ones he did not know, ones he was not taught. He settled back into his bed. Perhaps such speech was a test of his people by theirs, an idea that he had been considering, almost a blasphemous one, was that perhaps if he were to pass the tests, he would become a great one like them, and put on their marble skin. There were three, not a one of them of those anything like his body shape. They had no carapace, nor horns, and had two limbs beneath, two above, and a head atop its body. Its upper limbs ended in hands, and its lower ones ended in feet. Another had no lower limbs of any sort, but six in a ring around its upper segment, no discernible head. Their limbs ended in a variety of hands and feet. The third one was a long creature with one head, and three limbs from that head. It had no legs of any kind, but crawled forwards like a worm. As he thought, two of them walked over. The one with the two feet and the one with the six limbs had approached him, slates in their hands as they looked over their strange ritualistic implements, the daggers that they had pierced his flesh with, the soft bedding that laid him on, and with one to two limbs presented him with white seeds from earlier, alongside a cup of water. Ainu took the seed and swatted it down, drinking as the two great ones looked at him, then to each other. The one with the six limbs turned to the one with the two, and it made a motion with three of its legs, a motion that Ainu recognized as exasperation from its kind. If only your people spent half the money and time they spent on bombs and medicine, it said, then you would have cured this race with only a wave of your arm. The two-legged great one shrugged. Must you do this in front of the people? It asked, but then seemed bemused. Ainu squinted, knowing that behind the black obsidian face it had, there was another face that he could sometimes glimpse. Unfortunately, the light of this place blocked out those features, and he leaned back again. Yes, the six-legged one said. Perhaps then your kind will feel shame. Great ones, there is no need to borrow, Ada spoke. We would be lost without you. The two-legged one remained silent for a time, then took a small sealed jar of seeds that it had from the pouch in its mouth. Looking at it, it handed it to Adu. Do not eat one, commanded, but read the name. Read it out loud. Anu looked at the characters. Cyclophosphamide, the label said. He tried to speak it. C-c-cyclophosphamide. He said, nervous. Close, the two-legged one said. The two characters here, when together, sound like an F, and that one at the end there alters the sound. It is pronounced closer to cyclophosphamide. Anu felt ashamed of his error, but he tried not to show it. Is there any point to this show? The six-legged one asked. You taught him to read, you taught him to write. 
Are you going to list every medication he takes? All nutrients, antimicrobials, and chelating agents they are. Edu, please give me the cyclophosphamide back, the two-legged one said, holding a hand out to receive the object. Enu complied immediately, pressing the strange jar back into the Great One's hand. He then placed it back where it had received it. Human, what is the purpose of this? The six-legged one asked. The Great One, human, tapped a foot. Do you know where it came from? Asked the human. Enu picked up his head. They are seeds, are they not? He asked. I had taken one in secret, gave it to my son, told him to plant it. I thought... I thought that it would sprout. The human made an odd noise, and Ainu recoiled. Was this the wrong choice? It is not a seed, but uh, I can see why you would think that. No plant will grow of it, for it is not made by a plant. Must you always prattle? The other great one asked. Every time we speak to this kind, you always speak in the strangest things. You need not deliver every step needed to arrive at your instructions, human. You only need to command, and they obey. After what you did to the tyrants, who wouldn't obey you? Enu asked. Human shook its head. It's important that I am not just to obey, but why? So many times in our past, being given only a command and not a reason for why led to misery. A unique feigning of your kind, said the other great one. You who never outgrew war, you must explain every detail of something to your kind before you do it. You had shrugged. Why do you can never let our archaeologists to your homeworld? Perhaps you are hiding something. The accusation stung even to Ainu. Nevertheless, I will speak of war now, but I will speak more of cyclophosphamide. You can lecture this one, Ainu. I have more important matters to attend to, the other great one said, leaving. Human looked at Ainu and then retrieved the cyclophosphamide again. Do you want to know where this came from? It asked. Enu couldn't help himself. Human always tested him, and the solution was always the question. Yes, where did it come from? Many years ago, the human always started the stories the same way. My kin, fractious as they are, all lived in the same place, it said. As your tribes go to war, so did ours. Enu waited. Human always paused at this point to let the message connect. And in our wars, we created great evil and cast them upon each other. We mutilated the ground, slew each other in heaps, and left them there to rot. One war was so fearsome, it was whispered no more wars would ever follow it. So evil were our weapons that very few fought would ever left their blade again, said the human. Is that when your people found peace? Ainu asked. No. Even said. There were many walls after that, but as these evil weapons, one was so wicked that we all saw it agreed. Things such as it were to be sealed away and never used. It was poison in the air that melted the eyes and throats of those that touched, burning their skin. Those who touched it died, screaming skinless and drowning in their own liquid flesh. The human continued. In a war of horrors, this was one of the worst. All who partook of it swore it off come peace. Nana spoke. So, why tell me about this? For come the next war, we had lied to ourselves. 
In what was once a mighty empire, we had in secret created these weapons and placed them there. It was an accident that they were unleashed, but a terrible one. Many died, but among there was a man wise in such weapons and clever in such ways of medicine. He saw what had been done to the people and observed how it struck their blood, and he spoke to the others of his findings. And, Ainu said, what happened? What can heal can harm, and what can harm can heal. You just ate a drug descended from that weapon. Too horrible even for war. Too horrible for war, the human called the singer. Ada wondered what matter of soul lay behind the marble skin and the obsidian face. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1267. Story number one. Man on a mission, written by LG Father Anthracite. Steve was annoyed. He had gotten the spaceport three hours early. He had checked the itinerary. He had checked the boarding regulations on the data nets. And yet, he was now being informed that he was not allowed to bring open containers of water onto the shuttle. He started directly into the photoreceptors of the guard. It's water. I, I need it to live. It's a solvent. You can't bring open bottles of it on board said the guard with a kind of bored deadpan of put-on security guards everywhere. Steve picked up the bottle and, without breaking eye contact, drained the whole thing in one go, swallowing as loudly as he could. Once he was done, the guard, with no change of expression or tone, said, Have a nice trip, and stepped out of the way. Steve barely managed to contain the string of vulgarities that he wanted to scream at the guard, grabbed his bags and walked towards his gate without another word. He started breathing exercises to calm down as he walked through the concourse. Now was not the time to cause problems. He was on a mission. After getting to the gate, Steve prepared his paperwork for boarding and double-checked with the attendant that the gate was correct and no changes had been made. Once he was sure that he was in the right place with the right paperwork, he sat on a round, backless couch. He set his bags between his feet and pulled out a book that he had gotten. He had gone with an actual paperback, so that he wouldn't have to worry about disabling it during flights or transfers. He sat and read quietly for a while, as other passengers came up to the gate. A small child covered in short fur came over and stared at Steve for a while. When Steve noticed the kid looking at his book, he smiled and turned it to show the child the English characters printed on the page. He was telling the kid about the spy story in the book when one of its parents came up. Betchna, sorry, uh, was preparing, did not mean trouble. No, Betch, I was showing off my book. Have a good trip. Steve waved to the tiny furball as it got carried off. It waved back at Steve. Checking the time, Steve gathered his things and headed to the gate, where a line had started to form. He was fifth at the line. A few minutes later, the attendant, an iridescent blue insectoid, began boarding passengers. When it was Steve's turn, he handed over his paperwork, which was efficiently processed by the attendant. The paperwork was handed back with a cheerful, chittering noise. Steve took a deep breath, and with some effort responded with the same noises. The attendant waved his antenna in appreciation, and the attendant waved to Steve as he started to move towards the shuttle. Steve found his seat, stowed his bags, and strapped himself in as best he could. 
Three-point harness and soft black couches were as close to the shuttle and had two human seats. He lay flat, strapped to the couch, and waited. He felt the anxiety rising in him as the launch approached. Another attendant, one of the furry aliens, came and checked that Steve was as secure as possible. Steve gave a thumbs up and the attendant moved on. Steve was moving gracefully down the corridor in zero-g. He had thankfully survived the ascent and made it to Interstellar Ship, where he would spend the next week. He was currently heading towards his berth. Gravity fields would be applied once the ship was beyond the gravity well of the planet below. But parking orbit was close enough for our artificial gravities to interact with planet's natural gravity and cause issues. Steve found his berth and was unlocking the door when he felt something clamp onto his leg. Looking down, he saw the little furry alien child wrapping its arms around his leg. Chammy, where's your family, little one? He looked in the direction other child pointed and saw the parents hurrying up the corridor, looking slightly panicked. Steve smiled and waved. The parents that he had spoken to previously apologized again, but Steve told them not to worry. He patted the little one on the head and promised to play with it after the ship was underway. The furry family thanked him and continued down the corridor. Steve got his door opened and headed into the berth. Steve handed the child the sheet of paper on which he had just written the English alphabet and said, Let's try that one more time, okay? They then began to sing the alphabet song as the child pointed to the letters one after another. In a nearby seat, one of the child's parents trilled happily as it listened. Awesome, buddy. Be sure to show your parents tonight, okay? Again by Mr. Stevie, Neat said, Nan toddled off towards his parents. Steve waved at the parent with a smile and the child began talking about the letters that it had learned today. Steve reached into a pocket and pulled out the spy novel that he'd been reading. When the child had found him again, it had latched onto his leg and asked if they could play. Steve had spent some time teaching it the alphabet song as a welcome diversion. There were only a couple days left until the ship arrived. Steve sat in the lounge and finished his novel, having only a handful of pages left. Once he had finished, he decided to get some food and headed to the commissionery. Steve smiled wide as the tiny furry child sat on his shoulders and he had an arm around each of its parents. The attendant took a couple snapshots with compads and handed them back to Steve and the family. They had exchanged net mail addresses, and Steve had promised the little one that he would check in soon to see how his alphabet was coming along. After saying goodbye, Steve headed towards the pickup area at the spaceport and signaled for a cab. After typing in his destination, the autopilot gently accelerated. Steve dug through his bag and found a small wooden box. He had traveled many light years to get his hands on its contents. He hadn't been home in nearly two months, and now... Fifteen minutes in a cab was all that stood in his way. Steve stood outside the door, his bags propped against the wall, temporarily forgotten. He could feel the corners of the box dig into his hand as he clenched it nervously. He rang the bell. After a few moments, it swung open and a tall, slender alien with leaves laid flat against its head opened the door. She looked surprised and happy. Stephen, you're home two days early. She threw her arms around his neck, and he wrapped his around her waist. They hugged tightly, and Steve kissed her cheek. He finally let her go, and she took a step back and held the door for him. Yes, I, my love, I have something to tell you, he said, not moving. 
What is it? She asked, a little confused. I wasn't at training seminar for work. I was in Hemenai. I got this. He held up a little box and lifted the lid. Inside was a small, faintly luminescent seed. Ashenai's eyes narrowed, then got wide as she looked at him in a minuscule object and realized what it meant. She gingerly closed the lid, and then, once she was sure that it was secured, slammed into Steve, her arms wrapping around him as she squeezed as tight as she could. He could feel her sticky tears on his cheek as she whispered, Yes! into his ear. He squeezed her back just as hard, and she felt his watery tears on her neck. He whispered, I love you. End of story. Story number two. They See, written by Algie Father Anthracite. Humans scare me. Not because of their fighting ability, their surprising strength, or even the fact that they are harder to kill than an armored schnerklek. They scared me because they are so observant. I know what you're thinking. What is so scary about being observant? Humans watch everything. They watch how people talk to each other. Who avoids who? They watch how people move. Body language, they call it. They say humans are better observing alien body language than any other known species. Humans could convey more with a few gestures and facial expressions than most species even realize. I've seen whole conversations happen without a single spoken word. I had been unaware of this for many yarnums, until a colleague pointed it out to me. I just assumed that looking at each other was a human thing, like their uh, smile. I never imagined that so much could be conveyed so silently. Humanity's long association with multiple dependent species, such as cats and dogs, had given them an innate ability to learn foreign body language. Since they were such social creatures, they were just as capable with group dynamics as well. As with all species, there are those with more skill at this than others. I remember the first time I noticed a human actively observing others. It was at a gathering. There was an informal meet-up with several diplomatic call from several species. I sat on the edge of the gathering, quietly watching how the groups interacted with each other. He took notes on a small pad. He saw me from across the room and smiled a little and waved me over. After introducing himself, he pointed out some of his observations. How the ambassador of one party was facing away from his counterpart, despite being in a conversation. He said this indicated that they were only professionally friendly, but didn't actually like one another. He pointed out another couple of ambassadors who were, at least according to him, actually good friends. He showed me how the whole delegation was basically avoiding interacting with anyone except to make basic greetings. As the party progressed, he pointed out interactions between various members of the delegations. These interactions were what he was there to watch for. He said they would make it easier to make contact through back channels knowing who was friends with whom, and who could whisper in the ear of powerful people. He told me that how he was just good at reading people's interactions. He said there were specialists who studied every species' specific body language, how they would pore over recordings of important people until they could tell at a glance if someone was lying or not. Even if it was a lie, it was a terrifying idea that someone could give away so much without even realizing it. 
to humans. We are just prey to be observed. And that is why I fear them. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1268. Story number one. The first rule of Terran warfare. What is the first rule of Terran warfare? Nah, not your rule for waging war against Terrans. The Terrans' first rule of warfare. Everyone knows yours, mister. Screams it out from the skies. I don't care if you are offended by the Terran nickname for your people. It sucks, because it's accurate. You're getting off track, but that's my point. It doesn't matter if you're the first rule is fight for honor, kill all non-believers, or resistance is futile. You ask for my advice, and I'll give it to you. What is the first rule of Terran warfare? No, not even close. And now you're just embarrassing yourself. The first rule of Terran warfare is... They lose. Yes, that's it. You're not getting it. Look, uh, what does every other race's war doctrine center around? I'll answer just to save us both some time and headache. It's always about victory. Winning, being victorious, forcing surrender, and the variety of other things after victory. They all assume and expect victory. Of course it makes sense to you. You're like the rest of them, which is why everyone who has fought the Terrans has lost. And the Garukti have a better tech than you. And when was the last time you heard about them, hmm? Because the Terrans defeated them. Look, I'll explain it to you. But you actually have to listen to me. The Terrans do not care about winning. They don't care about victory. They don't care about honor, glory, or any of that crap. The only thing they care about is making sure their opponent gets none of that. They don't care. That's my fecking point. They don't care how many die. They don't care how they look or what their descendants may think of them. So long as you don't win, they haven't lost. Which means they will have descendants to think of them. Yeah, you'd think that if you lose, that they've won. But they've found ways to make sure that everyone loses. Think of that one for a bit. Look, go read the Terrans' histories and reports in war. They're very open with it all. You read that, actually read it, and still want to fight them, then, then come back to me and I'll give you the advice and information you ask for. If you listen to that, then you should be able to leave some descendants to learn from your example. End of story. Story number two. Torchbearers, written by number one American. Humanity has looked to the stars ever since the first man lit the fire. Our solar system and space beyond has been a subject of fascination for generations. It's what put the first man on the moon, sent rovers to Mars, and probes to nearly every celestial body in our solar system. Within every human being is an explorer waiting to be let out. We looked at our solar system and said, That's our future. But one question always remained. Are we alone in this galaxy? Many speculate that we in fact are alone. Others argue that it is impossible for us to be alone. But deep down, everyone wanted to know the answer. When the first moon base was established, it was seen as a new dawn for humanity. We had taken our first baby steps into our home, and had settled in a place once thought inhospitable. It wasn't until five years after the lunar colony was established that an answer would finally reveal itself. 
We were not alone. An alien facility was discovered deep underneath the surface of the moon, not two miles from the colony. All of the major nations of Earth came together. America, Russia, and China set aside differences, and under one name sent teams down to investigate. No one knows how it went undiscovered for so long, but it was here, hidden in plain sight, when explorers ventured into the sprawling complex. What they saw was astonishing. Farther inside the depictions of kings and historical battles, such as Hastings and Agincourt. Famous paintings and sculptures, perfectly preserved, were sat beside depictions of those of the ancient countries and peoples who had produced them. The writing of the alien civilization was finally deciphered, and, to our astonishment, they'd been studying us. All of our achievements and setbacks were listed out. They talked of us as if we were children who needed guidance, who needed protection. While smaller than hoped, this discovery once again lit a fire inside every human, although this discovery led to more questions. Where are they now? Humanity had formed under one flag, the United Earth Government, or UEG for short. Renewed efforts and communication picked up. We constantly sent out signals into space, but to no avail. We asked again, where was everyone? Mars was our next home, and unlike our lunar colony, this was to be the start of a new home for humanity. Five settlements were erected, each one housed hundreds of people, this was the beginning of humanity's conquest to settle the stars. However, another discovery was made deep under the sands of Mars. We were excited. We hoped to learn more from what we had assumed were our friends. But when we delved into these ancient ruins, what we found shocked us more than the first discovery. This complex was different from the other. Not in function, but by who built it. The architecture and language vastly different from the first, and on top of that, this building was even older. These aliens talked of ancient Rome, even having a copy of the sculptures of Augustus. These aliens had a recorded of the construction of the pyramids in Egypt. Species long extinct were alive in vats of green liquid. All of this was shocking. Not one, but two alien species were out there. But that just asked another question. Why are they ignoring us? It wasn't until we deciphered the language of this new species that we learn. Videos of a space battle between what we assumed were the ships belonging to the species and the ships of another species. What we thought was a victory for our friends turned out to be much more. They were protecting us, or protecting Earth. They talked about how we couldn't be discovered, how us remaining a secret was important for the future of the galaxy. With the last hope to bring light to a dark galaxy. Every species that came to Sol was to protect us as we evolved, and guide us from the shadows, but to not get directly involved. All signals sent out of our solar system were immediately stopped, and politicians debated daily as to what this meant. Thanks to the technology that we had found in the observatories, we sent more powerful probes to each celestial body. And to our astonishment and horror, dozens and dozens of satellites and observatories littered every planet in our system. All pointed at Earth, and each one of them another civilization that was older than the last. Each spoke of a growing danger, a threat that will wipe out all life in the galaxy 
unless it was stopped. One observatory was on an asteroid. We discovered Earth was seeded with life by the first species. This species spoke about how the galaxy was full of life, how hundreds of civilizations lived in peace and prosperity. But some outside force invaded, and as the galaxy burned, the ruling government had decided not all life should cease to exist. That our little planet in a system that was out of the way was chosen to be the new cradle for the galactic civilization. Each satellite and observatory spoke of a time in humanity's past. Each one showed just how we were influenced by alien civilizations. We talked about in high regard. They were proud of what we were becoming. We learned much from our benefactors. New technology that would help us reach distant stars and how to effectively terraform a planet. Regardless of what waited for us, we were ready. Each civilization had a mission to watch us and protect us. We don't know why they chose us, why every other race had decided to go along with it, but it was clear that we were the children of a long-extinct civilization. Of Pluto, an observatory spoke of how we were the last species. No more would come naturally after us. The galaxy had gone dark. Only our solar system was the spark that could ignite life and push back against the darkness. In this facility, however, was a message for us. To our children, we regret to inform you that we have failed. You are the last. You carry the torch now. We hope you have learned what you could from us. From the danger others galaxy will no doubt bring but it is up to you to see life back into the dark galaxy. Do what we did and nurture and protect them. Guide them from the shadows and do not let the darkness consume them. The information we've given to you is the work of billions of years of failures to push back the darkness that slowly but surely consumes us all. We have given you all we could, all of our knowledge on how to see life back into the galaxy and push back the darkness. We were too slow to figure it out. But you have been engineered to fight this threat, to bring light back to the galaxy. You are our last hope. With that final message, we as humans worked tirelessly to build fleets of warships and colony ships. We would colonize this galaxy with not just our people, but the building blocks to start life on distant worlds. We'd observe quietly, and we hoped to greet our children if they were to leave their planet. But if we failed, we would make sure that our children were ready. Our war fleets, accompanied by colony ships, jumped out and spread ourselves in the dark galaxy to once again bring light back to it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1269 Story number 2 Mimic, written by Stumpy Jim Entering through the portal in the great dungeon of Fail, the party of adventurers, composed of an elf, a dwarf, a lizardman, and a halfling, headed with weapons raised, arrows knocked, and spells humming in their hands. The world around them flashed and swirled, screaming and wailed, burned and chilled, sending them on for almost aeons, stuck in the ever-expanding tunnel between worlds. Then the door opened. The bell rang and they greeted by smiling humans wearing strange yellow aprons on a strange yellow shirt with a bright yellow hat. It was all the same uniform as they all had strange insignias, 
that looked to be a big M with eyes on the top of each arch. Hello, fine customer of the multiverse, the cheerful blonde man greeted, waving a hand with three fingers missing. Welcome to Mimic Burger. How may I take your order? The party of adventurers glanced at each other, murmuring their confusion at the strangely clean and sleek environment, with seats of yellow and tables of red. Be that a lich, the dwarf pointed his battle axe at undead sorcerer, sipping a milkshake. We must sleep, no, no, the blonde man shook his finger, frowning slightly. This place is specially enhanced by technology, disallowing violence in the restaurant. The dwarf ignored the man's warning and tried to smote the undead lord, only for it to clang in the air. Seeing, the blonde man grinned knowingly, no violence here. So, the halfling began as the dwarf grumbled and returned to his companion's side. What is this place? Uh, this is Mimic Burger, the best fast food restaurant in the multiverse. All the humans wearing the uniform said in universe. Fast food? The elf asked, raising an eyebrow. Yes, fast food, the blonde man nodded. We make it fast, we give it to you fast, and you eat it fast. Sounds convenient, the lizard man put in, looking at the menu. But yes, we strive to be the very best, the blonde man laughed. The dwarf tough. They serve ale, sorry, but we're a family restaurant and thus cannot serve alcohol to minors. The blonde man paused and then looked down at the dwarf at the front. Even if they are very hairy individuals. The dwarf began to raise his axe before the elf stopped him with the hand. Now, uh, tell me, how much will this cost? Well, uh, considering your world, we will primarily deal in copper coins. The black-haired woman behind the counter answered before the blonde man could speak. Really? The halfling furrowed his brows. That's pretty cheap for uh, the best restaurant in the multiverse, uh, don't you think? Not at all. The black-haired woman laughed, her hair falling back to reveal a half-bitten ear. All right, I will order them, the lizard man said as he looked at her food items. I will have the McMimic nuggets with large mimic fries and, uh, what's that drink? Lemonade, sir. Ah, Okay, uh, that please, the lizard man confirmed. Regular or sugar-free? Um, sugar-free. The woman tapped on a strange metal box that lit up with numbers. That'll be ten coppers, please. The lizard man rummaged through his pouch, producing a small handful of copper coins, stamped with the king's visage. The woman took the coins, then pressed something into a metal box, causing it to jolt open. Thank you, sir. She must smile before turning her attention to the other adventurers. May I take your orders? The elf and the dwarf each gave an uneasy glance. Can I get the... The halfling said, leaning on the counter and looking up at the menu. The Imitar Polo. So, um, do you want the mimic chicken? The blonde man chimed in with a glad smile. Oh, is that what it means? The halfling huffed and raised his eyebrows knowingly. I guess I'll have one of those then. Do you have salad? The elf asked, ignoring the scowl on the dwarf's face. Do you want the strawberry and mimic salad? The woman asked back with a smile. Um, sure, the elf said. That. Sir, would you like to order? The blonde man asked after ringing up the halfling. The dwarf arumphed, giving me the mega whopper mimic with chips and whatever you have closest to giving me a human heart attack. So, um, a super ultra deluxe quintuple expression shot mimic coffee? Yes, the dwarf nodded, having no clue what the human said, but pretending otherwise. That. After having ordered, the adventurers stood to the side and awaited their turn. 
They stood there for all but one minute before they saw four trays of food placed to the counter. Here are your meals. The woman and man smiled at them. Wow, this looks pretty good considering how fast it came to us. The elf said suspiciously, poking a fork at a crisp red-looking tomatoes and strawberries. Why put fruit in a salad? I know, the dwarf poked his paper cut that was hot from liquid inside. Do any of you know what the human was babbling on about? No, the halfling shook his head, looking at perfectly cooked piece of chicken with his side of fries. I am not sure uh, even the language I've ever heard before or seen. Well, we might as well enjoy this fine feast, the lizard man shrugged, reaching out for his drink. Before any of the four could begin eating, they heard a blood-curdling scream coming from the table behind them. All of them prepared their weapons, swung around and stared at the great demon, howling in pain and clutching their arm. His hand was missing and oozing with a fiery blood. Hello, the table was a massive burger with eyes and maws of gnashing teeth, having slurped up some fingers. What is that? The dwarf shouted, ready to lift his axe to the strange creature cowling on the table. It's a mimic, the halfling shouted, ready to shoot off a spell from his finger. Kill it, the lizard man roared, swinging his sword at the creature, only for the blade to clang again. No, 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 it's fine. The demon ground out, bearing through the pain. It was worth the, the risk. The risk, all the adventurers asked in gaping mouths. Oh, you didn't know, the redhead woman said, coming up to the table to clean up the blood. This is Minifburger. Is it alive? I don't know, is our motto. Wait, the elf pushed forward, staring with worry at the employee. Are you saying the food will attack us? No. The ginger shook her head. There's a roughly 7% chance that the food item is a mimic. How does that happen? The offering asked curiously. Well, we use ancient magic cooking slabs that cook and prepare all the food perfectly. The ginger explained. There is a chance that the food item might be turned into a mimic and try and attack you. That sounds absolutely ridiculous, the dwarf shouted. Who in the bloody hell would ever risk getting attacked by every time they eat? To be fair, the food is fantastic. The lich from the table over entered the conversation. I mean, I don't have a tongue, and yet I know that this is the best beef that I've ever eaten. Cheap, too, the demon agreed, biting back the pain and losing his hand. The adventurers stared at their food and drinks for a time wondering if they should dare touch them, and with a risk of being mutilated. Well, uh, I can always go back to the clergy and get my fingers restarted. The dwarf shrugged before grabbing a steel-steaming coffee and popping the lid. All of the other adventurers stared in shock and awe as the dwarf drank it all down. The, the, that was amazing! The dwarf yelled, grabbing the massive burger and chomping into it then swallowing with a joyful tear rolled down his cheek. It's beautiful! The other began to eat, with one of the strawberries snapping at the elf's mark. A small bundle of chips bit at the lizard man's finger, and the halfling saw some of the rice move like an army of ants. All of them agreed, however, that it tasted amazing. What an insane idea, the elf said, then the party left through the door. I, uh, I know her. The halfling agreed. Only humans would come up with such a thing. Good food, though. The dwarf laughed and patted his full belly. Let's come here again. Ah, I love the satisfied customer. The blonde man smiled. Crop! The slab cook swore. 
Did you lose another finger? The black-haired woman asked, peeking around back to see the man wearing a full suit of mail, holding a spatula in a hand. No! The man shouted, showing a bundle of chicken nuggets dangling from his crutch. I told you I need a codpiece! End of story. Story number one. We are humans written by Pepperlone. Never forget the humans. They were one of the kindest, if not the kindest species in the galaxy. Yes, there were some bad apples to borrow their own idiom among them, but there were no species who were so kind, polite, friendly, and uh, altruistic as the humans. Each and every one of us had been touched by them, from helping planets recover from calamitous disaster to saving a species from extinction due to a pandemic, to brokering peace amongst factions who were ready to go all out. Our debt to humanity was beyond repayment. Then they proved their altruism to an ultimate degree when they ended the invasion of the Dark Swarm. All of their colonies banded together to bait the Dark Swarm to the human's home system, fighting the invaders with everything they got, so fiercely that the swarm decided to focus all of their forces in that system. And then, the humans purposely detonated Sol, annihilating the swarm and saving the galaxy, fully realizing that they themselves would be wiped out as well. It is a price worth paying. I still remember their ambassador's final words. They, they gladly gave up their lives for others. We, we lost good friends, and we mourned for cycles. We promised, vowed, that we would always remember them. But words, not just words. Today, we put words into actions. Today, we will recontinue the altruistic deeds of the humans by reinstating the organization, the Interstellar Red Cross. Today, we are launching the first three mercy fleets with Mortgum fleets of hospital ships, first responder ships, constructor ships, crewed by the best and brightest of individuals who have decided to dedicate their lives for others. Today, we'll stop calling ourselves the Karathi, the Saimalas, and the Harunga, the Extru, and the Bulbits, and all other species that comprise this new organization. Too numerous to list in this short speech. Today, we call ourselves humans, and we are here to help. From the speech of Secretary General Botoxy Renholder of the Interstellar Red Cross, former Admiral of the Karathi Imperial Navy. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1270. Story number one. Human, but darker. Written by IndieKid1011. Before you had mastered fire, we had tormented your kind as predators do to their prey. Eons of hunting for sport before you struck back. And strike back, you did. Until that fateful day, we were known truth. Then, we were nothing more than myths, legends, stories. We had kept it up that way, but it got harder. The invitation of the ultraviolet light bulb caused problems for vampires. Better guarded livestock caused us werewolves to hunt wild beasts to survive. So much more. 
We were a hidden minority that could be erased at a minute's notice. But then you began to expand to other planets. Other planets were an excellent place to go. Forest planets were dense. You let livestock roam free. We werewolves had no issue disappearing with few cattle here and there. Dark worlds were wonderful for the vamps. Less sunlight and less crowded. Easier to keep up the masquerade. Then the Ilvati came. They preyed on you for sport as we did centuries ago. We sat by and bit our tongues lest we be rediscovered. They publicly displayed the hunts. The screams of humans were not something we enjoyed. We felt guilt at these displays. Then it happened. It was an average hunt for three Ilvati. Their target was nothing more than a young girl. They were interrupted by a homeless person, telling them to leave them alone. Everyone expected them to stand them flying as they did. Everyone expected them to laugh as the gill coward on the ground was picked up and gutted. But no one expected a man to transform and unleash a full force of a thousand-eared Wendigo to turn three hunters into mincemeat, saving the girl. Instead of the horror of being discovered hitting us, it was more as if a light went off in our heads. We had watched them, thinking about how we would stop them if only we had the power. It wasn't that we had power. It was that we have power. We learned many things quickly in a short time that we began to revolt that scientifically fire and plasma are the same thing. Spiritually, plasma weaponry did jack. It didn't even touch the blood-sucking pansies. And you humans who welcomed a sudden turn in your favor and gifted us in such incredible enhancements. Body armor, groomed claws, UV shields, the technology you gained in your unafraid state. We learned a lot in our war against Ilvati. And now we stand here asking to be amongst you, not as beasts that we were in the past, but as you are, human, but darker. York Tawny, Alpha of the Wolf Pack of Fenra, the Proclamation of Unity. End of story. Story number two. Empathy, written by O'Rider. Let me tell you a story. Ever since I was a child, I dreamed about captaining my own ship. I imagined myself zooming through the galaxy, meeting alien races, saving people, showing off humanity's bravery. Our strength, our cleverness. Being the shining beacon of hope throughout the universe. Humanity, fuck yeah, I would think. But when I got to the academy and started studying alien races, I realized how naive I had been. We're not the strongest race there is. We're not the smartest. We're not the bravest. We're better at some things and worse at others. We're middling. It was a real blow to my ego. I mentioned it to one of my professors, asking if there was anything, anything that we would do better than any other species. I remember the look he gave me. It was a hard and serious look. And then told me the one thing that we're better at than any other species. Empathy. I thought that that was a bullcrap answer. Who gives a feck about empathy? It's true that in compensation to other races, the human brain is more developed to experience empathy. But it just didn't feel like a quality to be proud of. It felt like being told by your mother that you have nice hair. I'll admit I put a real damper on my enthusiasm for exploration. But I kept going. I worked. I studied. And eventually, 
I graduated. I became an officer on a ship of Terran Union, and I saw the galaxy. And it turns out my conclusion had been correct. We are meddling. No one scampered away in terror at the sight of an approaching human. All looked on in awe. We weren't even sneered at, considering lowly or upstarts who were just there. Then we encountered other races. Some remembered hearing about our species. Others didn't. There are hundreds of FTL races. We didn't warrant a special attention. Eventually, I accepted it. It sucks, but that's life, isn't it? Accepting disappointment and making the best of it. I continued to serve on a starship, and I did well. I advanced, and eventually, I became the captain on my own ship. Not a grand war cruiser or anything. My ship was little more than a glorified cargo ship, transporting goods, messages, and people to other worlds within the Galactic Alliance. One day, we were sent to drop off some supplies on a smaller backwater colony planet called Treft. You may not remember the name. That's okay. It was a farming planet. It had maybe 100 people from several different species. No humans, but their families. People who had gone there to start their own lives. It was admirable. You might notice I keep saying was. That's because when we got there, it was burning. Raiders had been there. They'd hit hard and fast. They grabbed everything that wasn't nailed down, burned whatever they didn't need, and killed whoever tried to stop them. It wasn't done out of cruelty. It was done out of a sense of efficiency. If homes are burning, their owners are too busy trying to put it out to stop you. And if somebody tries to stop you, and they are slowing you down, so killing them is the most efficient thing to do. Simple math. But to me, it wasn't math. We landed on that planet and did what we could to help, put out the fires, tend to the wounded. After the fires were gone, I wandered around, seeing if any supplies could be salvaged for the colonists to use. And that's when I saw her. This little girl, who looked to be about six or seven by human standards. I don't know what race she was. She looked like a cross between a koala and a cat, both green fur. She was wearing a simple dress which had a few burn marks and was covered in ash. She was clutching a little doll in her arms. She was kneeling in the dirt, and in front of her, I can only assume, were her parents, lying on the ground, dead. She just knelt there, silent, staring at the unmoving forms of her parents, tears soaking into her fur. I remember walking up to her and placing a hand on her shoulder. She flinched, but didn't say or do anything. Then I bent down and picked her up, holding her close. At first she was stiff as a board, barely acknowledging me, but then I felt her tiny arms move up, wrap around my neck, squeezing me. And then she wailed. I will never, for the rest of my life, forget that wail, the sheer despair and terror and loneliness of the only a child can feel so completely. I will never forget as her entire body shook. The tears and cries, not enough to expel all those feelings that she had deep inside of her. I hugged her. I rocked her. I made calming noises. None of it made any difference to her. I remember crying too. Not wailing, not sobbing. Just tears running down my cheeks as I carried her back to the makeshift shelter where the other survivors were. One of them approached me. 
said that she had been the little girl's neighbor and that she could take her. The girl resisted, her arms squeezing more tightly around my neck. I don't think it was me in particular that she wanted to hold on to. She just wanted something, anything, to be solid and constant in her world. For those minutes that I'd been carrying her, I'd been a solid foundation for her to hold on to. Eventually, we were able to shift her over to the neighbor, and the girl clung to her just as fiercely. I walked away. I never found out her name. A few hours later, members of the Galactic Alliance militia showed up. Much like we did, they did what they could to help salvage what was salvageable, and prepared the survivors to be transported to another planet. When I asked what they were going to do about the raiders, they said that there was nothing that they could do. Again, this wasn't cruelty. It was logic. To chase after the raiders would be an FTL chase. It would be jump after jump after jump, putting strain on the engines until finally one gave out. Maybe it would be the raiders. Maybe it wouldn't. But it would take days, maybe weeks. It wasn't worth the resources. I walked back to my ship, and as I did... I remembered what my professor had said to me. Empathy. And I understood. I didn't just understand the girl's pain. I felt it. I felt her loss as if it had been my own parents that had been killed. My own home that had been violated. I felt hers and everyone else's pain on that world. And I realized I didn't give a damn about time and resources. I just wanted to get those responsible for this pain. I gathered my crew and told them. I told them I wanted to chase down those bastards who did this, to teach them what mistakes they had made. And I told them that if anyone was against it, to speak up now. They were all silent. They had seen their own horrors, shed their own tears. Not one was unmoved by what they had seen. And so we went. The raiders had little more than a day head start, and we quickly tracked down their FTL signature. We barely had time to order their surrender before they jumped, and we followed, again and again. The next few days were a blur of jump after jump, coming up after jump, racing towards them, only to have them spin up their engines and jumping again, and us following closely behind. We barely slept, doing everything in our power to keep our ship running, to make sure that we outlasted them. We were tired and frustrated. One more than one occasion, I thought about giving up. That this was foolish and pointless. And then I thought about the little girl, and all the sorrow and rage within me, and I kept going. And so did my crew. Five days, three hours, and fifteen minutes. That is how long the chase from Treft lasted until finally the raiders' engines gave out. We didn't hesitate. My ship is in a warship, and my crew aren't soldiers. We are not ever intended for combat, and yet the raiders never stood a chance. Maybe they were tired after the long chase. Maybe they never dealt with anything more dangerous than a defenseless colony. Or maybe the rage of my crew was just too much for them. Whatever the case was, we crushed them. We boarded the ship and took them all prisoner. And... That's how we got here, the captain said, a humorless smirk on their face, turning towards the leader of the raiders, who was tied and bound to a chair. What do you think of my story? Can you guess the moral of it? The raider swallowed, eyes wide, trying uselessly to escape his bonds, to flee from this insane human. 
Please, he begged. I'm sorry. I never do it again, I swear. The captain leaned forward, cupping the raider's head between both hands, nails digging into his temples. See, there it is. There's the fear, the terror. You are capable of feeding it. The captain's face was inches from the raider's sour breath against his skin. But it wasn't for those colonists. You didn't feel anything for them. I bet you aren't even feeling anything for your crew right now and are at the mercy of my crew. No, this terror you're feeling is all about you. And that is a problem. The captain let go, chest heaving, as if he had been running a marathon. They walked over to a table where they picked up a large wrench and hefted it, feeling the weight in their hand. My professor was right. We do feel empathy more than others. Sometimes it hurts us, but it also makes us stronger. Gives us strength. Tay turned again to look at the raider. I want you to know, just like I felt in those colonists' pain and terror, I'm going to feel yours as well. They then raised the wrench high and swiftly brought it down onto the raider's knee. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1271. Story number one. Removing the Terran's Mask, written by Cow Bites. Humans always seemed so... Standard to the galaxy. Yes, there were more prevalent oddities that they had. Their erratically funny being has always been refreshing. But other than that, they were simply there. Hewards. It was at that point that only a few select trusted or in a few cases despised beings got to see more. When it all started, when everything fell apart, that was when the rest of us started to see it. These humans... They'd been a bit like a reassuring constant, never necessarily feeling safe with them, but with what they were. The war changed it. It changed them so, so much. They had been involved in wars, and that chaotic energy, it helped to say the least. Here was a difference, though. The other wars were one could even say respectful, at least as much as a war could be. This one wasn't. Every screen was filled with the images, the videos that stay with us today, the memories that couldn't be removed with any drug, the nightmares that wouldn't leave. We tried to stop them, both in the war and what they showed, but we couldn't. They breezed past any possible holdout, slowly slavering that feeling of victory they got with every single ship, every planet, every species. If we had to guess... For every soldier, there was probably another dedicated to just the videos, the images, the audio. <clears throat> the audio. They won that war. They may be dead, but they won it. They broke us all, slowly. Steadily, every race crumbled. The problem was, humans don't crumble. They shatter. For the humans, it wasn't slow. It just hit a point, like a glass on the edge of a table. Eventually, it falls, and my God, did they fall. The humans to most had always been these polite, fairly steady things, as individuals differing, but throughout all of them in a general theme. Confidence that tethered between normal and stupid levels, a refreshing respective on all your issues, a constant shoulder to lean, cry, or even ride on top of. After the first videos began to be shown, it was when they started to fall. Some simply stopped, slowly sinking like a rusted ship. 
Some disappeared to some distant edge of the galaxy still yet to be found. Some left the galaxy in a different way. A more permanent exit. If you lived with a human for a little while every day coming home, you had authorities on standby. Eventually, all of them lost their battle. Those that wished to leave did, leaving no trail as they left to make a new home. The empty ones were taken care of. We tried to help them so hard, but they never came back. The last ones that remained saved us. They saved us in not an ecratic struggle or a heroic last stand. They did it in a steady burning fire, using themselves as light of fuel. They destroyed planets, stars, themselves, also the weak live. They left their homeworlds for us, for those they sent millions upon millions, and in inches they took them back for us. Even the dead species, throwing themselves into the flames just for their memory. I was there for their last fight. Every last warship, fighter, fecking cargo ship, they gathered in Alconip, the first system that had fallen. Every last human that was combat capable loaded onto ships. They didn't let us go with them. You could see it behind their eyes. They weren't even alive anymore. They were ghosts looking for closure. When they jumped, they collapsed the jump lane and then the system on the other side before continuing onwards. It wasn't foolproof, but it was all that we could do. The humans took off their masks for us. They took them off to save us, with them ripping out every limit, every rule, and every precaution that they made to keep themselves and us safe. They fell apart and made ramshackle repairs to the wreckage so that we wouldn't have to go as far as they did. I don't know if I would have wanted to be saved if this was the cost. We all look at the stars in the night, looking for signs that maybe they'll be back. Those few humans that aren't the same just wander aimlessly. Should humans ever be found again, should you ever be lucky enough to find some with their mask intact, protect them, protecting that thing with all you can, because once they as a species reach that point... They don't turn back. End of story. Story number two. There shall be peace, written by Wolf 21342. There shall be peace, an ancient writing on a worn-down monument in one of our oldest cities. I write these lines during the last days of the Federation. I record them with no hope of survival, so that any historians in the future may study our mistakes and so, may they do not repeat them. Galactic Federation. <laughs> Something quaint that we did not do away with the old name and our state. But, through our long history, we have had a chance to realize that certain names carry their own kind of weight. Especially in diplomatic relations with other powers. After all, if your preferred strategy is to offer protection to your minor neighbors... It is sounds much better when the proposal is coming from the most democratic and serene sacred federation of all galactic species than the Imperium of Blood and Glory. It is also why our ships were white since the time we left the planet for the first time. With modern technology, there is no particular reason to increase their visibility this way. But it was, and it remains, a symbol of peace and good intentions. 
I don't particularly know why, that is, nor do I particularly care, but it remains in a useful tactic. I have no illusions. Ours was a brutal, expansive empire that only accepted subjugation. Our ships were warships, our methods were insidious, but we did manage to maintain a good reputation outward-facing. For a while, we expanded using a tried-and-true tactic, pay off a small group of pirates to attack any newly discovered race with the left hand, and send the ships to rescue the people they attacked and destroy the pirates with the right, then offer an alliance and protection to the decimated forces. Some martial races would not simply accept our superiority after that, so we challenged their champions to a simple, fair fight, one-on-one, and inevitably defeated them. Either way, the Allies would then receive a steady stream of advisors that would help and uplift them afterwards, keeping up the charade until they were ready for a full subjugation. We spread this way from our homeworld until we reached a dark patch. We recoiled there from the dead suns and destroyed systems. A dark spot, impossible by FTL, impossible to conquer and hold and devoid of life. We recoiled because we recognized it from our oldest legends. A part of the sky that burned brighter than our sun, burned and died, and never to return. We recoiled, but that did not stop us from trying to conquer the last race remaining in the area. The Reds. Their name wasn't Reds, but we named them so as they were weird pension for the color. They lived in a cluster of systems lit by various types of red suns, on planets that were always red in coloration. What name they give themselves was never my concern, nor something I wanted to remember. What I have to remember is that they defeated the pirates that we have thrown at them. They defeated and actually destroyed our champions, even though that was as supposed to be impossible. They brought the war to us in ways we did not understand and could not replicate. With their swift attacks, they disrupted our commerce and supply lines, preying on any ship in white. Soon, it came to pass that only black ships of various less savory types delivered food to our frontier and took whatever they wanted in exchange. The Reds made us suffer, and that we could not abide. We glassed their main planet. When they tried to run, we glassed any planet they ran to. We destroyed a fair number of our own subjugated worlds when they rebelled in hunger rights, all in the name of of our hurt pride. Their worlds burned, owls starved, and smugglers prospered. Then our real enemy has showed itself, suddenly, and without warning, coming out of the dead, dark patch. Where our ships were Baroque, columnesque temples in space, meant to project the image of a great empire, but never under that name, for we are a federation. Theirs were almost brutally functional slabs of metal. Where our ships were white as snow, theirs more and more ashen, almost sickly green. They ordered everyone in the field to cease fire. They said that they had come in the name of peace. They presumed to past abdication on us all. Having told that the admiral in charge of the situation hesitated for no less than ten heartbeats before ordering fire on the newcomers into the conflict. He could do no less, for our bride was already wounded and would not bear another challenge. I have been told so by the only survivor the newcomers allowed, one that was been delivered to our homeworld to restate the message. 
Cease fire. Surrender. Prepare to be judged. We come in the name of peace, and there shall be peace after we are gone. This is when we realized that our enemy had a name. A name straight out of antiquity. A name pregnant with meaning. Of old, they named themselves Earth United Navy. The peacekeeping expeditionary force of the humans' terror soul. They are the ones that have burned the Dark Patch. They now burn us for the crimes we committed, for they have judged us and found us wanting. They will restore peace to the galaxy like they have done many times before, and they never were afraid for it to be peace of the grave. Across our sector, they have a new name, one of ungraciously foisted on them. We named them the Death Breed, after a very old nursery rhyme of our world. From terror they shall come, with the fleet of ashen grey, death and terror of their world they shall bring to you all. We really should have remembered. There shall be peace was never just a lofty statement, it was a warning. Do remember our deeds and our ultimate fate, lest you are to be next. From the private diary of His Holiness, Supreme and Sacred Leader of the Federation, last known entry. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1272. The Madness of Men. Written by You Sure I'm Not a Robot. Mylan held his youngest's arms tight as he pushed aside a dusty screen. He sniffed and blinked slow lids as the dust floated close to his eyes. This is your naming day, the day you choose a mate, and the day you may look upon the truth. The tower was dank this high, unused and open to cold rains that fell most days. Furniture sat unbroken and unmarked, buried only in dust of ages, where the scoured windows allowed the watery sunlight to illuminate the room. They made an unlikely pair, the grey fur of the elder and the golden shine from the youngling in the most important day. Neither of them would ever be giants, not like their ancestors, but they were stocky and as solid as the tower they stood upon. The youngster gasped at the sight outside, a window onto the hidden lands. Uncle, what am I seeing? Vast and empty buildings, far finer anything his people lived in, strewn across the horizon. Mylan released his hole and swept his arm to encompass the twisting landscape. Boy, this is the madness of men. Today I will tell you a true tale, as I was told it on my naming day. You will hold it in your heart until one day you stand here with an eye youngling of your own. The trace of bitterness entered his voice. This should have been your father's duty, but he sought out those high and empty towers, and never returned. The two remained silent as the older man seemed in no rush to begin the twin sons danced with the shadows as they sat, the little brother casting a last brightness across the pair. Finally, the dusk passed away, and the two sat silently. Impatience took the youngling, and he snapped, Uncle, will you speak? You talk of madness while we sit silently in the cold and dark. Mylan stretched and smiled, and then he stood and moved out onto the balcony, gesturing for the boy to join him. Watch and see the madness for yourself. Below them, the strange tower began lighting up. 
Every tower began blaring strange music. Every street filled with bright words of some unknown tongue. Lights everywhere, flickering, changing, sweeping the very skies. To the youngster, it looked like an army of ghosts were playing in some bizarre hell. The lights reached out towards him, and he snapped back, suddenly afraid of what madness it might hold. Mylan laughed. <laughs> Don't worry, boy. It's only lights and noise. There are other terrors that keep us away, but they do not seek us out. These are traps for those that fall to their simple spells. Build a fire and take your name, and I will tell you the true history as it was left to us. The youngling emptied his pack of wood that he had so carefully gathered for this day, and set the fire quickly. He set two bottles of spirits to warm and laid out the two small mats that would suffice until dawn. He watched as his uncle nodded his approval at each step, no matter how minor. He had heard tell of children that had brought damp wood who couldn't strike a spark, left nameless until some careless fool gave them one in the marketplace. He had kept his dry beneath his bed, much to the amusement of his mother's. Suddenly, it seemed childish compared to the light still glowing and flickering outside the window. Another burst of thought, another idea began burning in his mind. Mylan saw it happen, saw the moment the name arrived. Every child arrived with nothing but the names of heroes, the names of gods, until they saw the madness, the gift that was given by men. He pulled out two goblets and put them down. So, what have you chosen? The boy hesitated and lifted the goblet, now carefully filled with warming spirit. I choose Miranda. Mylan raised his cup. Son of the last light. He swallowed the warmth and reached out for the bottle. A fine name. A pleasure to meet you, Miranda, and may the world bend beneath your feet. Miranda hesitated for a moment, allowed for the first time to return the toast. And may the wind be forever behind you, Mylan. He drank quickly and nearly splattered his drink across his uncle. Mylan laughed. Easy, lad. We have all night, and I have a story to tell. Mylan sipped at the spirits, seeing the boy try and grow into his name. Today, you get a name, a mate, and a true history of our people. I remember watching as children played the games and entered this tower and descended boldly, named and now an adult, holding dark secrets. No childish promise made to tell all was ever honored. Friendships shunned. I was a heartbroken child until I was made to understand. Miranda flushed as he remembered whispered promises to reveal all to his friends. The secrets the adults finally revealed. He realized that he had already left that far behind. Instead of answering, he nodded and sipped carefully at the spirit. Mylan pulled a rug a little closer to the fire and enjoyed the warmth. Now save your questions for the priests, as I tell it to you as I was told to me. I have questioned this story closely, as did your father to his loss. I can tell you I find no lies. He took a sip and began, his voice becoming almost a chant. In the early days of this world, the days long lost of the churning rocks of our home, arose a people. Mad, that name was not ours first. It was gifted to us. The fire seemed to flicker a little more, and the shadows seemed to deepen. 
Man arose and claimed this world, this moon, and then the very stars. They don't hide their works, as even now a sharp eye can see the strange stars they built. We walked with them, treading the very stars at their side. They loved us with our condition, and we returned that love. But they were a difficult people, bickering and fighting to control all. He turned to Miranda. Lad, the stories of how they grew so great, of the forces that they fought to grow and far beyond me. They left us much, and the priests will tell you now that you are of age. The stars rose against him, seeking to strike man from the stars, and it lit a fire that wouldn't die. Never would they surrender their new skies. They feared for us, forbid us first from traveling with them, because we might be hurt, and then from shame for what they had done, what they had become. He drank a little deeper, his own naming suddenly real to him in a way that he had forgotten in fifty years. Then they stumbled, nor some enemy overcame them. Her world was lost, our birthright was burned, and they fell upon the enemy like gods of death themselves. A rage that burned worlds raged across the very stars. It was one of our people that stopped it, though we don't know how. The story is that man cried on the sound of the lost pup, and a moment of sanity prevailed. Man had loved us from the beginning of time, and now they were ashamed of what they were. Horrors, destroyers of those that had sought to crush a race of man. They could support it no longer, had found a different way. They blended with their machines and mixed themselves into vast creatures, a thing beyond my comprehension, and they pulled mankind from the universe. They built a new one, or broke into it. I was never sure. A place only for mankind with endless free skies and no one to tell them no, except for one people that they couldn't leave behind. Us. Miranda tried to follow the story. The madness outside screamed that this was true. He was about to interrupt when his uncle continued. The thing that man had begun took this world with them as our new whole world and gave us many gifts. Gifts of mind, gifts of knowledge. They cried that they loved us still and would guard us against the deepest dark. Then in their madness that they had lost the simple things and instead would keep watching us. He arose and walked out to stare across the flickering ghost city. He waited until Miranda joined him and raised his eyes to the stars. They said that they would watch and wait until we were ready to join them and we would be reunited. This is a true history of our people and the madness of men. Mylan watched as the young pup curled up in the blanket, the fire burning down to embers. A man today, when he left the town and a story buried in his heart, he gazed out at the rising dawn and emptied the bottle into his cup. Out there was something that used to be a friend. He hoped that it still was. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1273 Chuck it out. Written by Calamity Comet The captain had asked me to throw the auxiliary life support out the airlock. Chuck it to space, the tertiary life support as well, and the full series of backup comms, and the chairs, and now the... How much does a paint weigh? I did a double take. Uh, 
you mean the buffer paint? Yes! The paint that protects us from cancer-causing cosmic rays and would save us in the event of a solar storm. Yes, that paint! I raised an eyebrow. The paint that stops fires and room ignitions in the event of weapons penetration. Yes, first mate! How much does it weigh? 900 kilos? But I advise heavily that we don't scrape it off, Captain. In the event of a fire, that paint is worth its weight. I must advise there won't be a fire, the captain growled, because I also want you to jettison the oxygen. My jaw hit the floor. I fidgeted with my hair, tying it into a greasy ponytail, while my brain failed to find words. Okay, I'll have the paint scraped off. Good, the captain said. She smiled, sweat dripping down her face. And please ask engineering how much air we should retain. I'd like to dump one of the holding tanks if possible. The head of engineering stared at me. So, uh, she wants us to fight in spacesuits like troglodytes. His eyes spun for a second, and it looked like he might kill over on the spot. The air, he said, circling back to the point for the fifth time. Cap is so dull to be crazy she wants to jettison the air. Now, I've heard it all. I agreed with that sentiment, but as first mate, it was my job to enforce the captain's will. Yes, the air. I need to know how much of our supply we can dump and still make it back to our friendly port. Assuming that we win the upcoming engagement, said the engineer. He looked skeptical. We'll win, I said, painting on a weak smile. But to win, we need more speed for the first combat pass, and that means we gotta be light. So I desperately need to know how much air we can squeak by with. The head of engineering looked pensively at the holding tanks. Ten percent. I jotted it down and he nodded again. I wouldn't go lower. We can dump the other holding tank too. That'll just save us at least another 1,200 kilos. Thanks, Craig. I pushed off and flew down the corridor. The gravity generators had been one of the first things we got rid of after all. I stopped myself mid-flight, remembering another message from the captain. One more thing. He looked up, hopeful that it might not be another insane request. Captain needs you to cut out the Whipple shielding on deck C through F. I grabbed a handhold and catapulted myself down the hall, but not before seeing Craig from engineering throw his arms into the air in exasperation. One of the first things they teach you at the Academy in orbit of Mercury is that speed is a space's insurance policy. Delta V and specifically impulse are the first words they teach you. Space combat is math and Isaac Newton can't beat. We got our words from the Navy. We got our spirit from the Air Force. If you get into an engagement where you don't come out ahead velocity-wise, you run away. And if you can't run away, you surrender. That's not cowardice. That's the primary law. But our captain saw it differently. I needed all the ancillary view screens and holo displays jettison yesterday. Yes, captain. She pointed at me and then at her wrist again. We've got 120 minutes till the first pass. Don't drag your feet first, mate. I can assure you my feet never dragged once. I helped the boat swains carry bunks out through the airlock. I directed marines who had formed a brigade to shuffle out the wall paneling. I had the engineers pull up the engines and prepare the weapons. We were cutting it close. Ninety minutes and closing. The communications officer was steady called Chuck Yeager like usual. But a small wobble in her voice betrayed her feelings. We were cutting off an unprecedented amount of weight. The enemy ship was a campaigner, while our picket ship was made for short hops. 
The elegant alien ship was designed for proper interstellar campaigns. It makes me sound dim, but I didn't even know which of humanity's many enemies the ship belonged to. So long as we had an approximate data, it didn't matter much. And with what we had, we knew the enemy warship had a Delta V advantage so high that we all winced. By all rights, we should have surrendered. But if we didn't fight them off, the nearby colony was doomed. We knew how most of our enemies treated their prisoners of war. By now, my hair was all grease and I wiped a stinging wet sweat from my eyes. We were disassembling the ship in our underclothes by this point. The sweat wasn't just from exertion. We jettisoned our heat sinks and all but one of the radiators. Space combat wasn't just about speed. It was also about heat. Heat management was one of the primary determining factors in combat. But the contact speed of our first pass would be too high for lasers to be effective. Plus, we'd follow doctrine and put the ship into a sharp oscillating spin so lasers would never focus in one place for too long. If we won the initial pass by virtue of velocity, then the heat problem wouldn't matter. But the fight dragged on, we'd boil alive. Chill up first, mate. I whipped my head around. The captain had been uncanny ability to teleport wherever I was and say approximately the right thing based on what I was thinking. We'll wipe them out in first pass. Engineering has assured me that we're going to be whipped fast. I nodded and tried to smile. My captain was good, easy to work under, assertive but never too harsh. The kind of officer you dreamed in of in navigation school. But she could be wrong, and we were cutting it close. In the last 60 minutes before the first pass, time flew by like a whirlwind. We chunked out bunks by the dozen. We tossed out all food except protein cubes out the lock. The farm kids cried as they threw out crops and chickens. We watched onions and roosters freeze instantly and drift out into the black. The showers were jettisoned. The ventilators were jettisoned. The nukes and other weapons for groundwork were jettisoned. The personal devices, the combat suits, the labs, the pop-up tents, the monopropellant, the backup batteries, the nav tables, the decryption machines, the ansible, my socks and Christmas sweater. We tossed out everything not bolted down and half of what was bolted down as well. We cut the ship apart and then tossed out the tools that we'd used to do it. I sighed from the bottom of my chest. I was exhausted. Collectively, the crew was a ball of sweat and nerves. But the captain peered down the room, observant as always. Navigator, she said, calling our ship-based AI. How much does your hardware weigh? The Comtex hissed. Oh, boy, said the AI, the human intonation almost perfectly. I can lose all my SSDs except for the ones containing my last five yotabytes of data. I can lose my non-essential CPUs and graphics engines. The housings are negligible in weight, but can easily be removed, so you should toss those as well. Plus the crew consoles, which are mostly decoration, no offense. Everything else I will require to navigate you through the first combat pass, Captain. Thank you, said the Captain, while everyone else looked on in stunned silence. She just asked the AI to recommend the most efficient way to disassemble itself. And it had complied. Wait, I said, the realization dawning on me. Navigator just said it would be navigating you through the first combat pass. Not us. Please tell me that was not an oversight. The captain just stared at me. What's the first thing they tell you in orientation at space school? She said, sidestepping the question. It was a non sequitur, but I answered instantly. Space combat is not Star Wars. It's not fun or exciting. It's a lot of math and not a lot of bravery. All you glory seekers go join the Marines. 
Some of those around me laughed, while the detachment of marines just grumbled. Then I remembered the last part. Also, you're stuck in a tin can, so you don't even get to watch. Captain nodded, the barrister grins in her face. Well, first, mate, on that last note they lied. This time, you get to watch. Unbelievable, said the comms officer over the radio, scratching herself on the outside of the skin-tight suit. This must qualify as desertion of duty. A marine, floating half a kilometer away, reoriented himself and responded on the channel. Hardly. Technically, we were the ones who left the ship. The captain and the AI are the only ones legally still in the line of duty. Craig, from engineering, shook his head while upside down, floating only a few meters from me. All the crew together must only weigh a few thousand kilos. I'd must. I don't get it. Speak for yourself, said the Comptech. I'm on a diet. A free-floating subcore from the navigation AI jumped in. Every kilo counts. Besides, we're all much safer here than we would be in the ship during the first pass. Can it, C-3PO? No matter how you cut it, this is a crazy Earth-Ocean captain. Down with your ship heroic bullcrap insanity, said one of the ensigns. Though officer corrected him. I saw a few nod in unison. And he was right. It was crazy, but it wasn't dumb. We had a chance to pull a trick on the aliens in their fancy campaign, and maybe, just maybe, we'd beat them to the first pass. Maybe we'd save our colony and be a part of a small turning point in the godforsaken war. Our ship was already hundreds of kilometers away, racing towards the enemy. As the top of the chain of command at the present location, it was my job to inspire confidence. We will win, I said, and then she's coming back for us. I didn't say the subtext that we all knew out loud. If she didn't come back, we would freeze out here. With all of the weight that we'd trimmed, I had the faintest sliver of hope. But would it be enough? Two computers ran calculations, trying to expend as little heat as possible for as much density of data as they could manage. Two computers expressed dismay. Two captains, species apart but united in duty, looked at screens inside their tin cans. Two captains hissed at what they saw. It was unbearably close, implausibly close. A few meters per second one way or the other would decide it. And a crew of humans, missing only their captain, watched helplessly from inside their spacesuits. Two blips of light approached each other in the black of space. They passed. And then one burst apart in a flash of blinding light. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1274. Story number one. Don't Touch the Dead. Written by Mercury the Dealer. Don't touch the dead. From the depths of the dwarven strongholds to the peaks of the dragon slumber, all follow the rule. Do not touch dead humans. You can kill them brutally. You can burn, pillage, and destroy, but never touch the dead. Everyone follows this rule. The most curious of dwarven physicians does not care to dissect a human corpse, and the hungriest of goblins would rather starve than bite a human cadaver. If you kill or find a dead human, you leave the poor bastard there, or give them to another human. If you see a human a grave digger, let him be and keep walking. Bad things happen to those who break the rule. The first recorded case of someone breaking the rule was during the First Alvin Human War. An Alvin general, whose name has been long forgotten, had just captured a major human port city called 
Obadaprim. Yes, the same Obadaprim that is now our capital city. May I continue? Hmm, yeah, good. So the general conquered the city after a grueling siege and was almost done with only one problem left. What to do for the corpses? The Nadals were all buried with military honors on the outskirts of the city while the humans were put in one giant pile. Gravediggers came for the human dead, and soon they joined the pile too. How do the gravediggers know about the dead? They just know. Don't look into it too much. You won't like what you find. What did they do with the pile of corpses? They burnt it. Hundreds of dead men and women were set on fire and left to burn as the army prepared to continue their campaign. They burned for a whole night like a small star on the land. They burned for a whole second night like a small constellation on the black sky. By the third night, the pile burned like a small sun. By the fourth, there was no night for the fire had consumed the darkness as just as it had consumed the forest in which it was placed. The souls of the dead burned and burned like an inferno as they moved and destroyed the land and the army who took their lives. How did it go out? Simple. We destroyed a dam and flooded five villages just to put out the flames of the dead. Yes, that is why Obadaprim has so much barren land around it. He used to be a forest. The second time, someone broke the rule, which just a decade after the first time. A necromancer whose name is unimportant saw what a human souls did to Epidaprim and decided that they could make the great test subjects. What did they do? They brought a single human back to the mortal realm. You might have heard the stories of this. A gigantic skeleton with enormous bony wings capable of destroying dozens with a single hand. Yes, those are lies. No, they are not lies to scare children. The opposite, in fact. They are lies to comfort the adults of the true horror. It was a normal skeleton. It was not big or strong or even fast. But it refused to go back. The necromancer couldn't control it and ended up killed the moment the thing came back to our realm. So someone tried to destroy it. They couldn't. It didn't matter that we shattered its bones and tore it to pieces. It didn't matter that by all logic it should have come back to the plane of the dead. It refused to die again. Armies would be sent to destroy it and come back with half of their men dead and the rest injured. Walls that we had set up to stop which would be broken or climbed over in some cases simply dug under. The skeleton marched on and on, refusing to die. How did we stop it? We dropped a mountain on it. No, not a metaphorical one, but a literal one. Hundreds upon hundreds of mages lifted a mountain and dropped it on the cursed thing. Have you ever wondered why the dead king visits the lonely mountain every year? The empress may say that it's a diplomatic meeting, but the truth is that he is there to check to see if it's finally gone. It never is. It digs. It waits. Why, why are human dead like this while the others aren't? No one knows. Not even the gravediggers. Maybe they're dead or vengeful and want to punish those who disturb them. Or maybe they are unable to fully go back to resting once they've been awakened. Or maybe, just maybe, the reasons why humans fight and kill and don't rest even after death 
It's because for them, whatever is on the other side is worse than burning or being crushed for eternity. Don't think about it too much. Just don't touch their dead. End of story. Story number two. A dream's ending, written by Pfizer Moop. An intervention is out of the question. It would be foolish. The council chamber of the League had erupted into chaos of the Heroni ambassador raised his voice again and again. We cannot pledge ourselves to such a course. You must see this. Lord Ambassador Horatio Barra stood silent as yet another delegate was venting his anger at him. Order! Order! The Speaker of the Chamber was hammering down his heavy ornamental scepter time after time. Order, I say, or I'll make the guards remove those that defy the civility of this place. Only a few managed to rein themselves in. Others simply did not hear the Speaker or cared little for his warning. I will not be ignored. But that the five doors at the very edges of the round chamber slammed open. Men in hardened white ceremonial armors marched in. Not many, just enough for the ceramic boots and audibly thunder down the marble of the assembly hall. It was a drastic gesture, but it made its impact as most ambassadors who'd been standing and shouting just now ducked down and became oddly silent. The floor is to Lord Ambassador Horatio Abara, representative of the Earth Alliance, again. While the speaker made sure the protocol was upheld, Horatio noticed a lack of excitement for the announcement. As I have said to my esteemed colleagues, we are pressed to act. Now, we cannot. We must not sit idly by as we watch worlds burn and entire peoples suffer. Those are no worlds of the League, someone shouted. The speaker raised his scepter again to silence the objection. But so did Horatio raise his hand, for he accepted it. No, they are not. One might even argue that our relationship to so many had been proven difficult at times. But I am of the firm belief that such trivialities matter little in contemplation of genocide. We do not approve of what is happening, but the League will not be drawn into open war. It was Heroni Ambassador again, one of the staunchest opponents to the humans had to face. Certainly, war would reach our worlds. It would cost us dearly, and I may admit we may just sit within the confines of the League and watch as events pass us by, unscared. But would it? The League has been founded on the principles of integrity and honor, of empathy, and above all else, compassion. As he spoke, he felt anger rise up in him, yet he had to control his composure. He took a breath and continued, As we sit here, there is a war consuming the galaxy. A war that we had the strength and complacency to ignore. A war we failed to stop in its infancy, and now must face its escalation. He took a step forward. As we witness the Kovash Empire carving its way through the galaxy, we can no longer just remain witness to what transpires out there. The League was founded on the proclamation of support for the weak, a bulwark against the oppression, and a beacon of hope as we escape the darkness of our past. We stand tall as billions look up to us in their moments of need, 
yet we dare not venture forth from our towers of ivory and gold. Several men and women stood up, their voices dissonant in a word but unison in protest. Preposterous! Do not insult us! This is not our war! Order! Crackled the sharp tongue of the speaker once again. Yes, this may not be our war. We may let it pass us by. Let the Empire reshape the galaxy and be content with that. We may even possess the strength to guarantee peace for our worlds for another hundred years. Still, what would be left of the League, I ask, for the first time since the great moment came together to build a future worth striving for? We see ourselves confronted with tragedy of such magnitude that we can't ignore it, yet also with such great consequences attached to it, that we shall not expect fate to be merciful upon us if we were to intervene. Precisely. We cannot go out there and fight everybody's war. We have to take care of our own first. Yes, we have to take care of our own. I fear for their lives. I fear for the consequences. I fear for the blood that would be spilled and the lives lost on the field of battle. Horatio made a pause. It went on uninterrupted as nobody could object to his own honest fears. There is one thing that torments me the most. I believe in the dream that has shaped this league, that we can guarantee peace for our times, yet peace cannot be expected. It has to be made. We knew this when we ratified the charter. We had learned that lesson by so many lives lost. Thanks to the suffering of those who came before us, we now enjoy peace. Upon the principles laid out by them, we built this league. By their memory, we preserved it through the decades. Everything inside of me roars with a wrath and an anger as we now in the progress of abandoning them. Again voices were raised, but he drowned them out with his own, magnified by the systems now booming through the entire chamber. We have an obligation to us, the League and our ancestors. We cannot ignore the cries for help. To stand by would be a crime. To ignore the suffering. Atrocious. Order! Order! Lord Ambassador, you have made your case, and I will not stand by while you agitate this steamed assembly any further. Conclude your case in good faith, now. Horatio nodded. It failed in getting through. He had not expected success, but it still hurt. My esteemed colleagues, I have not come only to represent the course of action deemed necessary by the Earth Alliance but to relay a final proclamation authorized by the Grand Parliament of the Alliance. Effective immediately, as the Assembly of League has shown its reluctance to action, the Earth Alliance will resign its membership and vacate its permanent seat of the esteemed Council. We accept your decision, but refuse to be bound by it. The Chamber went silent in shock as Horatio turned around, yet paused, as he faced the banner of the Alliance behind him. Your people... Now heading for destruction. It was a soft voice. There was no accusation within it, just a statement of fact. Who had spoken, he did not know. Maybe we have seen the storm many times in our history. I hope that we have not forgotten to weather it. This, this is true. May this be the time that we invoked those virtues that we had laid to rest so long ago, for naught but a dream. End of story.
Tales from Outer Space 1275. Story number two. Instincts, written by Echoing Cascade. Lorisar was overseeing the hunt. He had been a cleaner for the underground lords for many years now, and his crew had a 100% success rate. This was due in no small part to Lorisar's expertise in hunting. Some species hunted for food, others sport, some for pleasure, but his species hunted because it was all they knew. This morning he was given an urgent job, take out an undesirable living alone in the late night transfer shuttle at the main port of Strauss Prime. He couldn't just kill the target as soon as they left the shuttle. Security was way too tight. Besides, weapons did not work inside the perimeter, so his crew would guide it to a designated kill zone. People often make the mistake to try and get inside the head of the target, but it is much more reliable to use their instincts against them. He went over his plans he already made. If it's a predator species and seems somewhat cautious, using a larger predator from my crew to buddy it into place would be the best. A tough-looking, sure-for-itself predator can be made to chase a weak predator that insulted it with ease. Lorazon looked at his watch and checked on every member of his crew to make sure that they were ready. If it's a prey species of the territorial type, spooking them will make them chase whatever frightened them. If it's not, the trick is to make it look like there has no way out and then give them somewhat obvious escape route. Many on the hunt has failed when amateurs attempt to corner the prey. Old game will fight if it feels it has no other choice, which is why the safest way to hunt a target is to get it while on the run. The transferred shuttle arrived at last and Lorisar watched for what kind of target would emerge. Predator or prey. What he saw was a human male, wearing a business suit and carrying a briefcase. A large bipedal horse-like creature was sitting across the computer terminal, where Lorisar's face would be seen on the screen. Explain to me why you cancelled the hit, Lorisar. You neglected to say the target was a human, Trenas. Trenas. So what if it's a human? I paid for the job and you failed me, Lorisar. Do you know how the average human reacts to being stalked? Because I know it would have felt our presence eventually. Trinus wasn't expecting these questions, and it showed. Trinus, I don't know. Run away. Lara saw. Trick question. There is no such thing as an average human. A meek-looking individual may fight to the death over an imagined slight, just as well as a drop to its knees and beg for mercy. They are prey who learn to become predators on a death world. My crew doesn't hunt humans. They're too unpredictable. Trinus. Mine. I expect my money back, and mark my words, the other lords will hear of this failure. Lorisar nodded. Lorisar, do as you wish. Trenos was making his way back to the vehicle when he noticed his bodyguards were nowhere to be seen. He then noticed the noise or lack thereof. That bastard, he wouldn't dare, would he? He checked the streets and found that many of them had people, just out of sight and holding onto something. Something. Like a weapon. Frack! I can't risk getting anywhere near them. There has to be. There has to be. Trinus smiled as he saw a small back alley devoid of anyone, brightly lit, and ran for it. Lorisa aimed his plasma bolter at the running lord, held his breath, and pulled the trigger. You should have told me the target was a human, Trinus. You really should have. End of story. Story number one. 
Reflections on Battle, written by Ack 1308. General Tarin eyed the map grimly. They always attack us from the east. Aye, sir. His aide leaned forward and tapped three different areas. Calgogan, Stratus, and Masuris. Each of them had more men, better chargers, stronger cavalry. But these mirror knaves picked the terrain. They attacked from the east a little after midday meal. Their archers walked behind a front row. And it is this front row that carries the polished shield. This was no idle maundering. Tehran had the measure of his swabana. Aye, sir, the aide said again. They look to have practiced turning the shield so that the sun can be reflected into the eyes of their enemy. Hmm, Taran leaned back, his fingers combing through his gray beard. Has anyone attempted to press the attack on before midday meal? The ape nodded. It has been tried, sir. They simply fell back until the sun had turned and the foe was tired, then angled their shields to blind the enemy and attacked. The germ of an idea began to grow within Taran's head. Find me a valley, one that is not easy to climb out of, and make sure that it runs east to west. We'll make our stand there. The aide stared at him. Sir, they'll hunt us down and defeat us in detail. Turan smiled. I'm happy that you think so. I'll be needing one more thing. Sir? Standing, Turan stretched straw. Specifically, the straw that you get when stables are mucked out. Have it made into bundles. I'll need as many of them as I can get. Leaving the aide staring at his back, he strode from the tent. The day of the battle dawned clear and bright. Turan astride his horse, shaded his eyes, and looked out over the hilly terrain that fed into the valley. A bright spark caught his eyes, and he nodded in satisfaction. Sir, his aide said, I think I just saw something. You did, agreed Turan. Our adversary is here, awaiting the hour of their demise. Of course, they don't know that. It still feels wrong, the young man said, doing what our enemy wants, I mean. The poor general assumes his enemies aren't as intelligent as he is. Turan quoted from the Book of Swords. A good general acts as though they are his equal. A great general expects them to be smarter. And are they, sir? Smarter? Turan smiled. If they are, we'll not fight this day. The sun had slid past the zenith before the first reports began to came in. The Maronites, as they termed themselves, were advancing in phalanx, their highly polished shields and armor throwing back the afternoon sun into the eyes of Turan's forces. Turan ordered his command tent struck and loaded onto the wagon, then mounted his horse and rode out to see for himself. The light, he was forced to admit, was quite intense. Any warrior or archer staring into that glare would be nigh blind in a matter of minutes. Fortunately, his plans did not involve them standing and fighting under those impossible conditions. Fall back by companies, he said, the order going out by runner. Archers, shoot only one arrow at a time. Keep them honest. Do not attempt to stand and fight. His orders were followed. As the Maronites advanced, Tehran's forces pulled back along the valley. He watched the sun, and he watched the oncoming forces. But most of all, he watched for the signal that he was awaiting. Far back along the valley, thin plumes of smoke began to rise high up on each side. As each of the soldiers he'd hidden there saw the smoke, the signal that the Maronites were entirely within the valley. They set to work with flint and tinder. 
lighting the bulky straw and manure bundles that had been carried up there in the dead of night. Halt! he called out. Stand to! We retreat no further. Archers, pick your targets, but hold your shots! His army stopped and turned from their desperate slog. Their general had promised them a battle this day. By all the gods, he was going to deliver. They held their shields ready, shading their eyes against the glare. The Muronites, as they came along, must have wondered at the odd behavior of the retreating soldiers. Had they chosen to stand and die at last? They did not see their own creeping doom until it was far too late. As plume after plume of smoke rose, finally closing off the valley behind Tehran's forces. The smoke rose into the air, spreading out into a gradually thickening haze that stood between the oncoming army and their greatest weapon, the sun. Tehran glanced over his shoulder to see the solar disk was naught but then bronze-colored circle in a dirty gray sky. Looking forward, he watched as the armor of those facing them became merely very reflective. He drew a deep breath. Archers! Draw! Every archer under his command drew back and knocked an arrow, target long since selected. No longer needing to slit their eyes when having to look for their target, they grinned savagely, awaiting the next command. It was not long coming loose. Dozens of arrows leapt out towards the enemy ranks, not at the heavily armored front rank, but at the archers behind. At Tehran's command, another volley went through. Then he bellowed, Make ready! The archers stood down. In their place, the warriors readied their shields and drew their swords. They had been waiting for this. Charge! They charged. The Muronites, used to victory after victory, took a fatal moment too long to understand what was happening. And then it was too late. Much later, after the last sword fell and the last hands raised in surrender, General Tehran rode the battlefield. He had an interrogation to get to. Some of the higher officers in charge of the Maronites had been captured alive, and he was in the mood to ask questions. But for now, he wanted to savor the victory. Let that be a lesson to you, he said, indicating where the raven perched on an overly reflective breastplate and pulled strings of meat from a dead owner. It's something I learned long ago. Sir, he said, asked. Terence smiled. Combat-ready troops are rarely inspection-ready, and inspection-ready troops are never combat-ready. Also, never trust anyone who polishes his breastplate that much. As his men chuckled dutifully, he put his heels to his horse and rode onward. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers. Just a quick shout out to the T5 peeps. Bob the Dragon, Cat Crab Lobster, Data Magnet, Dark Machine, Mezic, Try Again 95, Feudic Yol, Astrea the Dreamer, Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Athelia, Meridian 117, and Jordan Buxmorm. Thank you very much.